Welcome to Anything Goes, the best geek and pop culture show broadcasting Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney, and we're back with a brand new episode. And this week, we're celebrating the 20th year anniversary of Ocean's Eleven, the remake of the Rat Pack original. Now, it's probably a little curious, wondering, like, wait, I'm doing a movie anniversary on this show? Uh, because people who listen to the show probably listen to Please Rewind. What That's the whole gimmick of that show, is to talk about movies when it comes to anniversaries. But... I knew for this show I wanted to speak to one particular guest because he and I, like many things of our friendship, is built upon Ocean's Eleven and just the Ocean's Trilogy in general. And I think it would be remiss not to talk about these movies with him. And you heard him recently on the Dark Knight Rises podcast, Mr. Chris Buffet. How are you doing, Chris? I am doing great. Thank you for having me back so soon. I feel like this is... Uh... <laughs> unprecedented usually there's a there's a pretty big length in between at least in in recent years but i i appreciate you having me on for this we love these movies we love to quote these movies so uh i'm i'm sorry that jb and guy will have to to sit this one out but this is uh this is this is our territory i think yeah exactly and i know guy's not the hugest fan of steven soderbergh's movies overall so i don't think it's gonna be any loss for him and Jamie's like, eh, whatever. It's it's one less day he has to go down to the basement, record, and go back up three flights of stairs back to his, <laughs> his his bedroom. So I think he's happy with that. True, true. Uh, but like I said, we're talking about Ocean's Eleven, the 2001 version. So let's jump into our view of it right now. <laughs> Okay. Now, what was your history with this movie? Like, did you see the original prior to this? No, I had never seen the original Ocean's Eleven. In fact, I didn't even know that there was an original Ocean's Eleven. My introduction to the 2001 movie was my parents rented it from Blockbuster on DVD. This was during a weird period of time when we were having family movie nights, which wasn't a very long-lived thing, but uh, we watched the original Ocean's Eleven, and then my dad was like, oh, you should see the original one with the Rat Pack. And I was like, wait, what? There's they, There was another one of these? He's like, yeah, it's, it's nothing like this one, though. But it, And then eventually he got the DVD, and he was like, oh, this is here if you want to watch it. And I was like, mm, eh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair um i've only seen parts of it because like i don't know there's no real interest like i think sinatra can deliver good performance i've seen even dean martin do that same too like it's not like they're incapable of doing that but i think it's just they got together they just went like hey let's make a movie so we can hang out together and i don't know drink scotch the entire time i i that's that's my feeling from that movie so yeah <laughs> I have no real strong feelings towards the original version of Ocean's Eleven. It seems like, and again, I've never seen it, but from what I have heard from all accounts, it seems like 
it's just really the coolness factor that it skates by on. Whereas this movie definitely has that coolness factor and it has it in spades, but I think that it offers a lot more entertainment than just here's a bunch of really cool people. Let's get them in a room and Sammy Davis sings a song. <laughs> yeah. Nobody in this movie breaks out into a song number or anywhere here. You wouldn't expect that. Or a roast dais would be set up at one point and they would just start making fun of each other. Although, even though, certain- although I would expect based on oceans 12, I would expect maybe Basher to, to whip out a, a couple of jams. <laughs> A little bit. I just want to know if they would just be censored for radio or not. <laughs> it's like you watch that movie. It's like they do know how radio censoring works, right? There's no, there's no bleep. Yeah, like you record a radio. <laughs> what is the? Uh... Oh God, we had that joke for the longest time. Like the radio edit joke. It was one of the songs that, like, a heavy song that we really liked, but like, like it gets an explicit uh, lyric, and it would. Wouldn't be a changed lyric, but it would just be like radio edits, <laughs> and then they just keep going, and you're wondering like, wait, that does not, that just breaks the flow entirely. Yeah, I, I forget what what that is, but I I, I mean they, they literally do that in American Badass by Kid Rock. <laughs> oh God, and I just like like geez Louise, like I I mean I, I guess it's it's prudent on Aris's behalf to record radio edits of uh, songs, even to this day. Yeah. I mean, for the longest time, it would just be whatever the curse word was, but reverse it. (laughs) (laughs) That's literally what, I mean, I've, I interned at a radio station. That's what they did. Huh. I I can, I can imagine that be going through a song, like depending on the length could be quite laborious to do so. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, that's, uh, that's just the process you got to go through sometimes when uh, when you're not provided with a radio edit. But uh, how we got here, <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> no idea. Like, like I just, I'm just imagining some poor schlub in a, in a radio set just like radio, like the reel to reel tape around his neck. He's like, I can't deal with this anymore. Uh, yeah, and like you, this was at the height of Blockbuster's power. Where that everybody had a blockbuster account, or at least a like every family did at one point, uh, even to the point that recently on Twitter I saw somebody did like a map of North America, and then like it said like all right the whole map is blue, and then like every piece of yellow is a blockbuster store, and it go from like one store to like thousands of stores into the early two thousands, and slowly fade away back down to nothing. And yeah, like like your family, this was another one. Like, it, mom or dad, mom. Well, let me be sure. Mom rented this because who wouldn't want to see this movie? Because it has every big star at the time was in that. So sat down. Like, I'm pretty sure it was like a family thing, or if not, it was just her and I. And yeah, Amelia fell in love with this movie, and that the fact that we would continue to see these movies in theaters after seeing this one on video those are just great memories those blockbuster movie nights and and i that's something i truly truly miss i miss 
I mean, we could just probably do an entire episode on Blockbuster as a whole. But yeah, this is a movie I strongly associate with those type of memories, with renting it from Blockbuster. In fact, I think we bought the DVD used from Blockbuster from like the big bin that they had. Because this was for the longest time, this is one of the like five or six DVDs that my family owned. Uh, Mm -hmm. So this was a movie that got replayed a lot over the years. And if I had to, to gander what the rest of that collection would be, it'd be Ocean's Eleven, the Godfather movies, Goodfellas, and you. You know what? You're you're very close. I mean, my dad had those movies on VHS. Um, okay. I don't know if he ever got the Godfather's or Goodfellas. I don't know if he even ever owned those on DVD. But some of the most random movies, like U five seven one. Black Hawk Down, Pearl Harbor. Actually, you know what? There is a theme there. My dad was... I was going to say, like, yeah, my, it's slowly coming together right there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. My dad would just go and buy DVDs used from Blockbuster. So those were a lot of... And I never watched those because I was never interested. Uh, but randomly, the the very first DVD that our family ever owned was Little Nicky. So yeah. go figure that. We we loved Billy Madison in our family, but Little Nicky, I don't even know if if we ever watched that one. But Ocean's Eleven, that was one that we did watch together, which is great because it it really is a movie that anyone can sit down and watch. You can sit down and watch this with kids. You can you can sit down and watch this with your grandparents. Like it's just an entertaining movie for that amount of time. You will go in and be entertained. Yeah, it, it truly is a, like a a four quadrant movie that like everybody is taking care of right there. And it's not explicit in any way, even though it's a PG 13 movie and they get away with two F bomb drops, which is like a rarity up until like recently you were able to do that. Usually you were able to get one and that's it, but some other would get away with two. And, but like, those are like fleeting. Those are, and it's not like, like children cover your ears kind of thing. Yeah. It, it's, it's basically just Ruben, talking the way everyone's crazy uncle <laughs> talks or something. We, they need the Ruben radio edit, though, is, is really <laughs> what they need. It's funny when you watch this movie on TV and, and it like it's so obviously edited. It's like, You're still in the middle of the desert. <laughs> like, so like the, the, is Ruben a, a robot? Did he just have a glitch <laughs> right from And it, it's uh, clearly... Uh, Danny and Rusty are wearing because they're unfazed by this this cyborg that's totally malfunctioning in front of them. Yeah, yeah Google's uh, Google's text to speech algorithm is uh, what was powering Ruben's voice box. <laughs> and then amazing Yen, and like, that's an appropriate response after they nearly blow him up in the vault accidentally. It, it, yes, he earned that one. He earned that one. Oh, <laughs> uh, jeez. But yeah, so this movie. Started in development in, in the January of 2000, so literally the beginning of the millennium. It's like, okay, Steven Soderbergh uh, was riding high on, he was, because that year, the year prior, he was nominated for Best Director for two movies in the same year. He was nominated for both Traffic and Aaron Brockovich, uh, eventually winning for Traffic, I believe. And I think it's the reason why. Julia Roberts ended up in this movie because they obviously work together. And Soderbergh is one of those people who, um, what was it? Uh, like he has a lot of recurring uh, filmmakers show up in his movies. Like he worked with George Clooney and Don Cheadle and Out of Sight a few years prior. And even to the point that Soderbergh 
able to turn George Clooney, who was a big TV star right now. Obviously, now everybody was sort of, is, kind of thinks of George Clooney as like, oh, he's Batman. He pretty much is. He really, he really is Batman. <laughs> lives like what was it in Ocean's Twelve? Like when we cut to Francois Truelor's place on Lake Como. It's right. George Clooney owns a villa on Lake yeah, Como, right down the street, <laughs> right down the villa. <laughs> right, and and you were like. I, I, yeah, he like there was a reason why he was cast as Batman, Batman Robin, and it's just a, a sad state of affairs that like in a parallel world, people would still be asking for George Clooney to play Batman to this day. Yeah, I mean, there are times in this movie where I'm like, he's kind of like the Batman of crime, and this is his, this is his Justice League. <laughs> It pretty much is just. I mean, we have an assembly of the team. They they have a they defeat an evil doer. Yeah, it pretty much. And we were talking prior to uh, us just uh, starting recording here. Like, yeah, this is like the Avengers, of the early two thousands, where like it really is. Everybody you know shows up to be part of a team here. Yeah, Russ is his Nightwing. <laughs> he, uh, he, uh, he 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 finds him in a in a lowly state with these <laughs> these horrible. Uh, Horrible poker players who just happen to be movie and TV stars. <laughs> you don't know how often I've wanted to say to somebody who can't hear me that I want to yell at them, like, I'm running away with your wife, <laughs> just to see how they react. Uh, and I think that because of this movie here, and yeah, and so armed with like the success of those two movies, along with George Clooney wanting to do this movie, um, that they want, like, he's like, all right, we need to see him sort of to do this movie. And there were a lot of people that were almost considered for this movie. I mean, Luke and Owen Wilson were almost the Malloy brothers in this. I could see that. <laughs> wow. wow. All right. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I'm not your pal, friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bas- basically just bottle rocket, but in the middle of Ocean's Eleven. It, it, yeah, it pretty much would have been bottle rocket in Ocean's Eleven. I mean, you're not far off because they were uh, contracted to do the Royal Tenenbaums, another Wes Anderson movie, so that's why they couldn't do this. Uh, Mike Myers was considered this. Bruce Willis was considered at one point. Ewan McGregor, Alan Arkin, Ray Fiennes. Um, but what was it? Uh... Okay, I'm reading off Wikipedia here, so this might be mistaken because I don't know how this would actually work, but Marky Mark, Mark <laughs> Wahlberg. Guess who he's considered for? Oh, wait, no, no. He was going to be uh, uh, Linus. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because I remember, uh, hey, do you remember <laughs> talking about this? <laughs> no, no, don't pull your, like, don't touch that. You see, pulling my your gun out of your holster and just waving it around here, man. Say hi to your mother for me. Like, no, like it's like, a, like I, I can't see it. Like Donnie Wahlberg, yes. Mark Wahlberg, I'm not sure. Oh boy, <laughs> I'm glad that didn't happen. Yeah, I'm so glad we got the cast we did. Um, and apparently, Julia Roberts was such a star at the time. She was like getting like twenty million dollars a picture. And in order to get Julia Roberts in this movie, George Clooney sent this script with a $20 bill <laughs> saying, I heard you get a 20 a, a picture now. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and why he's the perfect Danny Ocean. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> that that right there is just that I love that. Yeah, he I was watching some of the bonus features, which are on YouTube if anyone wants to check that out. A lot of the featurettes, making of documentaries, things like that from the time. And from the first one, that's the first thing that Clooney starts off with. Yeah, I hear I hear you get 20 a picture. <laughs> Uh, and according to like on the commentary track, like it was hard to do scenes with uh George Clooney and Julia Roberts because they would just make each other laugh in between takes the entire time. It's kind of like, but it's like wrangling children, like a couple like, of okay. teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> what if Michael J. Fox was the amazing yet? <laughs> Danny, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I could do this. <laughs> to see him doing the backflip and everything. <laughs> the little Canadian uh, guy. <laughs> I don't know. It just looks so hard. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> now just imagine, like, Chris Lloyd shoving uh, Michael J. Fox into a trash can. It's like, hide here. We'll, be, we'll get you later. I'm Lyman Zerga. <laughs> <laughs> oh lord we just uh, recast the, like, the entire we look, <laughs> movie oh, with cast back to of, the future <laughs> yeah I, so thomas f wilson is obviously terry benedict oh my god yes <laughs> Do- donald <gasps> donald full of love could be basher <laughs> yes uh billy zane will be hmm who would Billy Zane be? Like, he had to be one of the Malloy brothers. You know what? I could see it. I could see it. Leah Thompson would obviously be Tess. I was just about to call her yes. Lorraine. I was like, Lorraine! I'm like, I don't know if that's right, sir. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, so like the cast that we do have, obviously we have George Clooney as Danny Ocean. Uh, we And this is done in the recruitment order. We have Bernie Mac, R.I.P. as Frank Catton, uh, Brad Pitt as Robert Rusty Ryan. Um, but when I say it like that, it sounds like a real huh, Rusty Ryan. Like that sounds like a sexual act you pay for. Like down Skid's Row, like you want a Rusty Ryan? Like no, I don't. <laughs> I have the maps of the stars, sir. I want to get out of here. Uh, Elliot Gould as Ruben Itchishkoff. I think that's how you pronounce his last yeah. name. Casey Affleck and Scott Kahn as Virgil and Turk Malloy, respectively. Uh, Eddie, James, Eddie Jameson as Livingston Cell. Don Cheadle as Bachelor Tar. Shabo Quinn as The Amazing Yen. Carl Reiner as Saul Bloom. And Matt Damon as Linus Caldwell. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only time I'm going to make that joke here. So I was like, all right, I'll, I'll make it once and then we can, we can drop it. <laughs> it plays. It plays. The nose, nose plays. plays. <laughs> oh boy! And other people that we have him here, like the two bigger actors outside of the eleven, is obviously we have Andy Garcia as Terry Benedict and Julia Roberts as Tess Roberts. Now the movie opens up with Mister Ocean himself, a convicted thief, being interviewed by the parole board, and kind of in a this is kind of something that Soderbergh likes to do sometimes, where you'll start in the middle of a conversation and like you were camera pointing to one person and you just hear the person they're speaking to off camera. You don't hear, you don't see who they're talking to. Like he does it and Aaron Brockovich does it here. He does it in the beginning of oceans 12 when, um, uh, uh, George Clooney is pretending to be Miguel Diaz opening up a 
savings accounts with millions of dollars, even though he's a high school. Wait a minute. Uh, is that the name he uses? I think it's what it is. <laughs> That's one of the main characters of Cobra Kai. I never realized that. <laughs> Holy shit. Is that the name he right. uses? I think he, I think oh it's what he God. uses. Uh, like, hold on. <laughs> I'm, I need to figure. Uh, you would think that I would have remembered that when I started watching Cobra Kai, but I had no idea that that's the same name unless unless you just made a little snafu there but that no i feel like i can hear him in my mind saying hi this is miguel diaz i am on the cobra kai Twi- uh, reddit and it says just knows george clooney's character uses miguel's identity to commit crimes with oceans 12 shake my head holy <laughs> shit diaz miguel diaz right because i think i've had that i had that epiphany while i was going through cobra kai as one well, and i forgot to text you about that that just i that just blew my mind right there wow yeah holy shit um but the, like every parole board asking like will you are you going to commit crimes again why'd you do it in the first place and he says like oh i was in a my wife left me and i was on a downward slope and being very irrational like will you do this again sure he left me once i don't think she'll do it again for kicks but how do you feel about this opening like this interrogation and then when Danny eventually ends up back in Atlantic City. You know, it, it it has the same just impossibly quick and cool dialogue that the rest of the movie has, but it's obviously he's been just waiting for this moment and he's just, you know, putting one over on them and this is just part of who he is. He's a con man. He has these answers so prepared, but the way he delivers them, it's just like, oh, this this motherfucker. This, this guy knows exactly <laughs> what he's doing. This, as soon as he can, you know, get a shave and a shower and get the hell out of here and put a suit on, he knows exactly what he's doing. But I, I think, especially the way it opens up, just when you're seeing, like, the, you hear the up against the wall and you see, like, the 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 logo and everything like that. And it's all kind of this very muted and blue looking kind of tone. And it seems like it's almost going to be a little bit more of a serious movie than it is. But then as soon as he walks out of that prison, it's like the music starts and just the world opens up. And then by the time he's up that escalator, you're like, okay, this is, this is the, this is the tone we can settle into now. So it's, it's, it feels like a little bit of almost misdirection, but um, yeah, I, I, I love, I just love the way he, he just kind of, just immediately snaps back into action. However long he was in prison, he just immediately kicks back into con man mode. A J cut in editing terms where you have the audio of your next scene play on the end of your current scene. Where like, like, so like a uh, dialogue stops in the current scene, you hear the audio from the next scene and then you just kind of, you cut into it. And so you can get in late, get out early as in the principal, like how you're supposed to do with most scenes. And I like how it's been used here as we hear like what's going on in the prison before we see it. And then we see George Clooney is kind of like, kind of like, not going to say haggard or anything, but he's got a little stubble. He's, he's in prison slacks. He's not in the best clothes in the world. But then when he cleans up and he's in, gets that movie star entrance with him coming over above the escalator. Yeah, that's the King of Cool is back and we're all here for it. And it just... It starts a tone for the entire movie that it is delightful and it's a breeze. And the fact that, like, these movies are fast. They they barely, like, I think, like, Ocean's 12 is barely over two hours. And the other ones are, like, just under it. And how much stuff 
is accomplished in each two hours uh, movie is really remarkable. Yeah, it's it's really down to, I think, just that quick and snappy dialogue that no one really speaks this way. But because it is just performed so well and just because of who's performing it, you know, the, the actors themselves, it just it comes off as as very endearing and very entertaining. It does. It's not that it's oh, this is so unrealistic. No one talks this way. Like you watch Gilmore Girls and they're just talking like this. And, blah, 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 blah. and it's <laughs> like, holy crap, we're just we're just doing a, a sit a, like a a a show on the WB. It doesn't need to be like this. But here it's like, yeah, no, these people are so sophisticated and smart and just crafty. Of course they talk like this. Of course they have these, these witty, you know, one-liners and remarks ready to go, just shooting from the hip. It's just kind of like, it's like tennis with them. You get a bunch of these guys in a room and they're just, you know, serving it up and, returning it and it, it's great it, it's part of the mu- the movie's vocabulary it's it's part of the way the movie feels and sounds and i love it i love the way this movie uh sounds i love the characters i love the way it looks i just i love all of the those aspects that make it up and yeah daddy coming up that escalator looking like a completely different person looking like a million bucks he got that shower, he got that shave, and he's he's white, literally wiped the jail off of him and <laughs> ready to just get back to uh, doing what he does best. I, I love it. Yeah, and I get, so he's immediately, it's his first night out being a free man, so what does he do? He goes and meets his old contact, Frank, played by Bernie Mac, even though he's a dealer at a casino under the name of Ramon. Uh... And it is, and it's something like watching this again. It has really made me miss Bernie Mac, and I wish he was still here making movies and making just people laugh. And I'm just like, that's like the only, I guess, the unfortunate thing about watching these movies is like, he's like, oh, you wish he was still here. Yeah, and it's why I would never want them to do another one with this whole gang because you can't have Frank there. And it's it, it'd be so sad. I mean, he has one of my absolute favorite scenes in the entire franchise, which we will, I'm sure, talk about later. But yeah, I, I love Frank. I love this coded conversation that they're having and just all of the the, the, the subtext and everything. Uh, I, I love the way Bernie Mac delivers the lines. I think you must be mistaken, sir. My name is Ramon, as you can see here on my name tag. <laughs> It's just so cool. It's it's so fun. Uh, it's like, huh, table's cold. We can get up anyway. Like, I heard the, I forget what casino they say, like, to meet up later on. Um, and then, like, around 1 a.m., that's when Frank gets off work. And so they, the two of them meet up and catch up, and they want to know where he is. And you're wondering, like, who are they talking about? But then we cut off, we cut to Hollywood, California, where, um, that Brad Pitt's uh, character Rusty is teaching professional actors how to play poker who are incredibly inept at playing poker. He's also eating, too, in case anyone missed that. <laughs> he eats a lot in every scene. <laughs> how and, does he do it? We don't know. It's like he won the genetic lot- lottery in like many ways. Um, like one, like he's able just to look, 
eat anything and it would be fine and still have like that that figure he has but i think what what's the rationale he said like they're always on the move that he'd just always be stuffing his face because he couldn't sit down and have a normal dinner or lunch yeah i guess that's just the way this guy lives his life because it's funny you don't see any of the other crew just doing it to this degree this guy is just just endlessly eating and it, it it's it's a great gag it's a great running gag but yeah it's like holy crap this guy what is he was he diabetic he's always got to <laughs> got to have something <laughs> like come on man you can you can wait i don't know it's it's uh it it's funny though i love it and i love this card game because it's just great to see people like uh like a Topher Grace or uh, a Joshua Jackson who have no business being in this movie, but they still have a place for them in this movie. I guess it's another thing I've screamed 2001 that Topher Grace was the, like the, uh, the big wig and it's something that they'd follow up again in oceans 12. And it's, Going back to what you're saying that like him just always on the move and uh, always eating, I just think of a lot of exchange that he uh, that Rusty and Ruben have in Ocean's Twelve, where Ruben says like, "You're micromanaging. You keep doing this. You're not going to have a life. I don't want a life. I just want the hotel to work like our hotel works." <laughs> yeah, I mean that's and that says so much about his character right there. And that's like we can just see that he is the guy that makes everything happen. He is on it. He is the guy that makes everything run. So yeah, he completely gives up his life and dedicates it to whatever project he's working on, whether it is a heist or whether it is running his hotel. So of course he doesn't have time to eat. It really <laughs> makes complete sense. Yeah, and like, like I'm not the best at poker. I, I pointed this out recently on the Casino Royale episode I did in Please Rewind, but... I know when you're dealing, you always deal to your left. And if you're playing poker, you try to make the best hands possible. Like, either, like, how many cards you want, you call or fold or raise. Like, yeah, those are really simple. And, like, <laughs> I, it's a joke on them. Like, none of them are really good at playing poker. And it's curious. Like, you think of, what's the movie that came out a couple years ago? Jessica Chastain, Molly's Game, where it's the woman running all these kind of, like, high-end, like, like, backroom uh poker games and like uh michael sarah is playing like the hollywood type of that movie and it's supposed to be kind of like how uh toby mcguire and leonardo dicaprio oh, yeah. like those people who were around this time were betting a lot in these poker games yes another thing that i remember hey do you remember talking about yeah <laughs> i remember the spider-man episode they were talking about that a lot bark like a seal oh my god and like you think of that, and you think of that, like, TMZ video that uh, Tommy McGuire is, like, trying to negotiate a turn with paparazzi in his way. He's like, get out of the fucking way! He's, like, he's getting ready to run over these people as they try to take his picture. Like, like, uh, like leave Spider-Man alone. He's just trying to make a turn right now. Maybe he's not, like, maybe he's not the best dude. Who knows? I don't know. But, yeah, it, it is, it's curious to say the least. I feel like Tobey Maguire should have been in this card game here. I, I like I, I kind of imagine like that's what Topher Grace is trying to do. Like, I mean, he tries to take Peter Parker's job in Spider Man Three, so that's what he Ooh. took his role here. <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> no, because, because of this scene, though, I I always remember that you can't have six car- six cards in a five card game. <laughs> <laughs> like God, like 
like I, I get like if you're it's just you and your friends like around the table like it's fine but like all right you're actually putting like a couple hundred dollars into each like each hand yeah try to be a little more attentive not be an idiot like that <laughs> um i know nothing about poker I play Old Maid. That's my game. But because of this movie, I actually used to sometimes put on the World Series of Poker. Remember when that was a thing on TV? Yeah. That was a big thing. I used to sometimes just have that on <laughs> because of this movie, because of the amount of times that I would just have this movie on. And, and that was a, a big part of it. I always enjoyed this scene. I always uh, used to just pretend that it was Charlie Conway playing cards <laughs> instead of Joshua Jackson. <laughs> uh like i've worked a few poker broadcasts uh, at times of my job and it's like you're fighting to stay awake during those broadcasts because it is just like i mean like you have like the golf announcers doing the commentary over it it's like we don't know if he's gonna stay or he's gonna call this one like oh he's gonna call uh and just like and just like you lull it's just like I'm, so, I'm I'm okay I'm awake I'm awake I only have another mm, four hours to go of this someone just bangs a big gong to wake everyone up in the middle of it. might as well I think it's, it's it's more for the crew than the actual poker players so I, camera tilts and, down no <laughs> camera tilts up points at the lights oh jeez. <laughs> But that's what <laughs> that's why the poker players wear sunglasses at the table. You don't know if they're actually awake or not. <laughs> but this is where uh, Danny uh, reunites with uh, Rusty, where they they clean out. They play a con on the the actors here, and they clean out all the money they have in their possession. Yes, you. Uh, they get a really good lesson, and they get some firsthand experience at uh, bluffing. <laughs> And what that's all about. So it's really in the long term, they will have learned more as a result of this. So I'm sure Rusty could retain them as clients even after this uh, this this thorough cleaning out. Yeah. And, and that's after like so Danny and Rusty go to get a drink. And that's when Danny lays out his plan of what he wants to do. He wants to put together a score and take it. And like Rusty's like, OK, what is it like? When was the last time you were in Vegas? Rusty asks like, wait. You want to knock over a casino? And Dan just holds up three fingers. Much to the chagrin of Rusty. He, he can't believe it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> just the sound he makes. This scene just looks so cool. It almost doesn't matter what they're discussing. It just looks cool. And that there's a lot that can be said that you can say that a lot in this movie. Um but it's just great that the, what they're discussing also happens to be, you know, the setup for a really exciting movie. But it just looks cool. It really does. And, and it's, it's, it's fascinating that starting at this point, Steven Soderbergh would, would operate as his own cinematographer and camera operator going forward under a pseudonym. But, yeah, and so, like, everything now, like... And the, his philosophy is, like, I can work faster. I'm closer to the actors when I'm doing this because I'm literally right next to them. And when you're working so fast, you don't have you don't have time to be pretentious. So, And I'm cheap. So that's why I do this. And I'm like, that's a really good philosophy to have. Um, and, yeah, it, the movie looks stunning, especially in this scene where it's just, it's just the, the warm, like, red lights coming off the bar that's next to him. And that's like, the only light source in the scene. Yeah, it, it's beautiful. There are so many beautiful shots throughout this movie so my hat's off to mr steven soderbergh he 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 knows how to make them 
That he does. That's then when we cut to, uh, we're looking at schematics at this uh, this one vault that um, seems to be impregnable. Like you can't Ooh. break in whatsoever. Um, and the, and but Rusty's wondering. Wait, you said three casinos? And he's like, yeah, all the earnings from the Bellagio, the Mirage, and the MGM Grand end up here. And they're like, wait, those are Terry Benedict's places. And Danny's like, yep. Just matter of fact, like, yep, we're gonna be robbing Terry Benedict. Think will mind. <laughs> more more than most uh, more than slight <laughs> and this is where they start with like the, a running gag goes through all three movies where they throw out names like code names for things they're going to need for a job and here it doesn't mean anything they're just throwing out names by the time you get to Ocean's 13 every code word they use actually does have a meaning to it like the Gilroy or the, the Brody and so on <laughs> and so forth uh, like to- like the Gilroy being Tony Gilroy, the screenwriter who wrote a lot of the Bourne movies. Uh, the Brody being like a- a- Adrian Brody's nose, so that's why they have it there. Uh, and so on and so forth. The nose plays. The nose plays. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this is when we get like a really good like trailer moment here when Rusty asks, why? Why do this? And Danny has a speech prepared for it. Oh, yes. He has the speech of the century. <laughs> his-, his Oscar... <laughs> scene you could just picture him just in his prison cell practicing this yeah like like because the house always wins you play long enough the house takes you and so that that perfect hand comes where you bet big and then you take the house <laughs> you've been practicing it yeah i have Did I it? no 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 it's fine it's good the teen beat the uh, thing you said was kind of rough <laughs> because brad pitt was a tiger teen beat kid yeah, cold decking teen beat cover boy. <laughs> but that that speech, you know, it's great. And then it's also great that they know that, okay, yeah, a little cheesy. So let's also comment on that. It's That's part of, just part of why this movie works so well. It's like, yes, we know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But also the movie is still funny despite anything that could be considered. Oh, that's cheesy or that's convenient or that's whatever. The movie is very self-aware, which is I think is great. But I think the movie the movie also really works because of the nature of of what Danny is saying. Yes, it it is very satisfying to see someone get one over on the house, and and really that's something that they even double down on in the third movie too. So it's it part of why this movie works is really just exactly what he said in the speech. Yeah, because I think. Most people are not the high rollers. The high rollers are very a select group of people. So general movie audience could relate and wanting to get back at the house in one form or another. So yeah, it's 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 like watching Stone Cold Steve Austin stun his boss. It's yes. like you want to do that so badly, but you can't. But here is the best possible person who can who can do that and we can live vicariously through him. This movie is that for anyone who's ever gone to Vegas and lost a thousand dollars and had that experience because yeah, you're going to go there and you're going to lose money because Vegas really robs people for a living. That's what Vegas's job is. So it's just fun to watch it, you know, watch the tables get turned in this way. Quite literally. (laughs) Uh, but they need some kind of fan- financial backing to do this. And so they're like, oh, all right, we have to go see Ruben. And Ruben, played by Elliot Gould, who takes the idea of robbing a, a Vegas casino in the most reasonable manner possible. 
and does his own like little listicle video podcast history of Vegas casino robberies for them right there. He just had that information ready to go. <laughs> this man is uh, he he probably knows he knows a lot about a little and this is one of those things that he knows about. <laughs> They got cameras, they got they got guards, they got guns. They have enough armed personnel to occupy Paris. Okay, bad example. And yeah, like he said, he rattles off the three major attempts of trying to rob a casino. One, somebody tries to steal a lockbox in the, in the 1960s, I believe. Uh, second, somebody tries to rob a bunch of chips from a the table. From the Flamingo. And one of two really... Harsh pratfalls that happen in this movie. I'll get to the other one that happens later where the dude is literally clotheslined by one of the security guards via nightstick. Yeah. <laughs> and just the sound is like, there's just the, the wallop he takes. You're like, ooh, and the freeze frame. Like, oh, that's got to hurt. And then it's the, it, what is it? It's, a, it's Caesar's Palace in, yeah, in, in the, the 80s, 80s where... <laughs> where Berlin's taking my breath away <laughs> as this dude is running out with literally armfuls of cash and the no the security guards know like I can't outrun you but you can't outrun my bullets and they cut him down right there in the valet parking lot the perfect just the most perfect use of that song ever <laughs> I cannot listen to take my breath away without thinking of that very scene it is it is a thing of beauty I love it though I love it because <laughs> also it's like yeah, he just had this queued up and ready to go. He just he just had all of these. He knows the history of Vegas casino robberies. He knows you why you cannot do this. He knows exact. Of course, he's the perfect person to get in on this project. Of course, of course, you go to Ruben. And and obviously, Danny and Rusty are like you know what, you're right. We can't do this. Sorry, we wasted your time. But these two gentlemen are con men, so of course they. Decide to con Ruben a little bit here by walking away be- without telling him too much. So Ruben's curiosity gets the best of him and asks, so which casinos are you going to rob? And they lay him out. And that's when Ruben's like, wait, those are Terry Benedict's places. Which lights the fire underneath Ruben because Terry muscled him out that he was gonna he's going to blow up one of Ruben's old casinos that built a, a gaudy monstrosity in his words. And... You're gonna need, uh, we're gonna need well funded. And it's like, yeah, you need a crew as nuts as you are. Who do you have in mind? Um, so Rubens, and then we get, we go into the montage of recruiting everybody else as part of the scheme. I think Ruben is my favorite character from all of these movies. I think he's just endlessly quotable. But when you think about it, he's also, aside from Danny and Russ, he's also the most important character because he is the reason why that th- this actually this plan actually forms and this crew forms because because it's Terry Benedict now he has the incentive to get involved in this otherwise this doesn't happen and then when you think about it Ocean's 13 is all also just because Ruben got screwed by Willie Banks so it's like Ruben is Ruben sets up these movies he sets up the action of these movies in a way that if he wasn't there none of this would have happened and 12 wouldn't obviously happen because 11 wouldn't have happened if not for Ruben. So Ruben, my favorite character also, I think one of the most important characters, I think this, these movies hinge on Ruben and also he supplies the money. So he literally makes it happen that way too. Yeah, he is 
important from a financial standpoint and just a emotional standpoint right there. Um, because Rusty and Danny are just like, they're, they're cool as cucumbers, but like, Ruben is willing to be loud and make a scene. Like, he wears loud clothes and everything. He's just a loud individual. But it's a nice contrast between him and everybody else in, in the team. And I know it's been said elsewhere, but just how Soberg photographs these scenes and, like, how he stages them is really cool. And if this movie, if these movies are proof of one thing, they know how to do montages like it's nobody's business. And so we begin, like, the first really big montage of the, like, uh, assembling the team. Like, we got to get the Avengers or the Justice League together. This is what you have to do. Uh, Ramon, a.k.a. Frank, uh, pretends he has bronchitis and he relocates to Las Vegas. <laughs> that shit-eating grin on his face in the taxi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. It is so funny. Uh, and then we, the Malloy brothers, Turk, uh, Scott, uh, Scott Conn, and Virgil, Casey Affleck, who are, they're kind of like every, like, they're good for almost anything you need them to do. Like, I think Virgil's probably a little more tech-savvy of the two of them, but they're all-around dudes that know what to do. But their introduction of them just being perfect brothers are just bullying each other and trying to pass the time where Virgil's got a remote-control RC car of his brother's truck, and he's out, and they decide to race them. But Turk is just like, Petulant, he's like, nah, I'm not gonna let this happen. Just runs over his brother's RC car, and the greatest laugh in movie history. <laughs> and then he, he just puts the antenna down, and it's like, oh, oh shucks, like a real Charlie Brown moment right there. Now let's see him do that with Doc Brown's remote control DeLorean. That would be something. <laughs> It'll be a spectacular wreck. <laughs> um, and then we see Livingston Dell, uh, who was working, f- who was the who was the tech side of, of this operation, but working for the FBI at that time. But it's a little nervous. Uh, <laughs> that maybe not the best person under pressure. <laughs> no. <laughs> he sweats a lot. He sweats profusely. But I just I. I love Livingston. He is, he's just a sneaky, great character in this film because almost everything he says is very funny and very quotable. (laughs) Do you see me just taking the gun out of your holster and waving it around? (laughs) Hey, Radio Shack, calm down, okay? (laughs) Uh, Or later on when he's like, he's undercover to plant that device in the the Bellagio and he passes the security guard like... Hey, how you doing? Thanks, guy. Like, uh, 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 I'm like, oh god, very relatable. Yes. <laughs> um, or even love when later on, where you see him like walking in a park, he ends up getting tangled by a jogger <laughs> and that dog, and he's like, no, uh, he gets tangled up in the, the the leash as Danny and Rusty in the foreground discussing what who the hell they're gonna get. Oh lord. Um. But this is the one, another one of my favorite exchanges here when they're talking about one of the people they're going to get. And they're like, what about this guy? Dead. No shit. On the job? Skin cancer. Did you send flowers? Dated his wife for a while. Yeah, poor old, just Finn, like- poor old Phil Turrentine. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's that's just that verbal tennis that they got going on. 
Uh, and they're like, what about Basher? There may be a problem with the availability. Because they, I think they already they know that this is going to be a terrible job that Basher's has gotten himself into. Yeah. Basher is another one of my absolute favorite characters. I mean, the accent is just... It's just so, so corny. But I love... I love a lot of his lines and I love his performance and I love his little dance that he does walking into this vault and all right, chops, hang on to your knickers. (laughs) Oh, leave it out. You toss us. You had one job to do. I endlessly quoted that. I actually in like, I don't even remember. Maybe it was like early high school. I had this friend who was in my homeroom and we weren't like super close friends. We didn't really hang out. You know, we played like peewee soccer together or whatever when we were younger. But it was a kid I'd grown up going to school with. But our friendship was basically quoting this movie in homeroom. (laughs) And it was a lot of Basher quotes and a lot of Ruben quotes as well. We would just literally just just I would be turned around and we'd just be saying lines from the movie at each other. <laughs> like not even not even discussing the movie, just throwing quotes back and forth. And that was basically our entire high school experience. And I bet if I saw him today, the first thing that that he would say would be an Ocean's Eleven quote. So I'm just imagining the other students sitting in homeroom just hear you on the other side of the room. It's like, you're still in the middle of the fucking desert. <laughs> and you're like, what are those two talking about? There was no deserts around here. <laughs> yeah, people just have no idea what we're talking about because we were the two weirdos who went home and watched Ocean's Eleven and just had it on the background while we were doing homework. So, yeah, I I have this this mem- this I have this entire movie memorized from an audio standpoint like very well like i could just listen to it in my mind if i wanted to like i'm not surprised you have like a ripped audio file of just the movie itself oh yeah i mean like i don't even need that but like (laughs) i basically should have the amount of times that i had this movie on and didn't even look at the screen more than a few times i was just you know typing a paper or something like that but it it is a comforting movie to have on in the background for me for that reason because i just i know it so well and the dialogue it's just it it really uh sticks with me and has stuck with me all these years so yeah the quotes they just they just they fly (laughs) uh and apparently the cockney accent wasn't in the script that was a don Cheadle uh choice um I know people say, like, oh, that's not that great of an accent. I'm like, it's not, like, Dick Van Dyke, um, Mary <laughs> Poppins bad or anything like that. But I think it I think it would have been less of a performance if he didn't have the accent. I think it makes him a little bit more memorable because he has the accent. So, for that reason, I don't hate it. But... <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, apparently, Steven Soderbergh is, has a cameo as one of the other uh, thieves with... Uh, Basher here as they're going against this vault. One of the tossers. <laughs> and Rutsy shows up as an ATF agent and he's like, all right, tells the superior officer to say, just find Griggs, will you? Just find him, okay? And then they end up like throwing a grenade in a, a cop car and then just running away. And I love <laughs> it blows up and they're like, Rusty does the good thing and tells everybody to get down. But Badger's like, hoo, 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 and they weren't expecting that shit as they were running away from an explosion that is caused. I love the way they just run away so gleefully. <laughs> yeah, because they're not like they're in a, like, a hurry or anything. They're like, oh, like, hope we get like, it's the same run you do 
when you're trying to cross the street and a car is coming, they stop and wave you across. Like, that's the kind of run you do. Like, you don't, like, run full hard. You're like, oh, I'm just going to do a light little jog here to cross the street right now. <laughs> you got to admire the kind of balls on Rusty to just walk into a situation like that completely confident <laughs> that he can pull this off. It's just like, oh, my God, I can't, I can't even go to the store. <laughs> and this man could just impersonate a detective at a crime scene. <laughs> Just walk up with like a trench coat and a badge, like that's all I need, and a cigarette. Yeah, I'll sell the part. Uh, and so, and then in San Diego, they need a grease man, and they find the amazing Yen, who's part of the Barman Bailey's uh, greatest show on earth. Which I did see this iteration of the greatest show on earth because I recognized the clown, but I don't remember seeing the amazing Yen part of the show. Ah, oh, damn it. <laughs> Are, are, are you sure? He's the little Chinese guy. <laughs> you can't it miss him. Look, it doesn't look that hard. As, and then you, amazing <laughs> end being a, 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 a physical feat unto itself, like all the flips he does. And they're like, wow, we got a grease man. We got a grease man. And that just that gif of Danny just shaking his head like, I can't believe it. And just Rusty just like gleefully clapping. It's like one of those things I use very often on Twitter. <laughs> Yeah, um, amazing yen. I guess fitting into the Robin role here. I guess pretty much, <laughs> but I, I'm like I'm not sure if he speaks Cantonese or Mandarin. I'm not sure, but he's able to understand English, and everybody else is able to understand him, and it's never explained. And it doesn't need to be. <laughs> no, it's great. Um, I mean, like because this movie is run on like this kind of heightened logic. They just like it's like don't. Stop overthinking it. Stop being a nerd. Just roll, just roll with it, okay? Go with it. Yeah, we we don't need a, a twenty minute explainer video explaining all of the inaccuracies and things that didn't make sense in Ocean's Eleven. We don't. It's fun. It's supposed to be fun. <laughs> just go with it. Uh, and then so they like, all right. We need we need we need one. Of course, uh, another person. So the Rusty goes down to Florida to get Saul Bloom played by the great Carl Reiner, and. And but Saul is retired. He doesn't want anything to do with the business, and he's just enjoying himself, eating his oranges and watching uh, dog racing. And everything, and he's got a a lovely uh, lady who works in the Sears shoes department. Doesn't need anything. No, no, else. the unmentionables. The unmentionables. Excuse me. <laughs> the unmentionables. Yes, and I and I love the generation that he comes from, where he doesn't even say, "Oh yeah, she works in the the you know lingerie or the underwear counter." <laughs> she works the unmentionables. <laughs> Truly old school. <laughs> uh, I saw you when you got your ticket. I saw you before you even got up this morning. What are you doing here? <laughs> and he's got this grandfatherly warmth about him that adds a whole n- another aspect to the crew that they're assembling here. Yeah, I, I love, I love Saul's role. As the elder statesman here, he's been through it all. He's done it all. He's seen it all. And he's, I'm retired. I'm too old for this shit. And they somehow just pull him back in. And he plays such a pivotal role. I love that. And I love the moment that he gets at the end of the film, too. Yes. Um, because like It says something. He has health issues here at the beginning. Not serious, but uh, enough to mention. Um, but then Danny and Rusty are like, or sitting in a bar, and Danny asks, do you think we need one more? Do you think we need one more? Okay, we'll get one more. (laughs) 
just just the non response from Rusty, just head down, exhausted. He's <laughs> just making all these things happen, and he, he's he's probably also uh, in a food coma right now at this point, knowing him. So I just I love that. I, I love the unspoken conversation. <laughs> Yeah, all the carbs just hit up all at once. He's like, all right, this is my bed right now. That's what I'm going to use this bar for. Uh, but that's when Danny goes to Chicago uh, to get Linus Caldwell, played by Matt Damon, and who is a great pickpocket, but he's unaware that he's been pickpocketed by Danny himself, who tells him to come uh, meet him at this bar and lays out the plan here. Uh, and what is where he set up that Linus is the son of the infamous... Bobby Caldwell and didn't know, oh, you come from like a lineage of thieves. This scene is great if you want to either remember or find out for the first time what it was like to try to watch videos online around the time when this movie came out, because that's what it, it pretty much looks like, except it is very intentional and looks cool. It's a great effect. Yeah, like the slow, like... The slow motion in post, like it wasn't shot in slow motion on the day, but they post process it to make it look like it's slow motion. So you got this weird stuttering effect to it. But I think this is a really good point here because this is going to lead into like the next, like one of the first really big needle drops in this movie. But the music yes. in this movie is just as iconic as everything else. Like it's like a good movie is like a, a jigsaw puzzle that works together. And the better all the pieces fit together perfectly, the better the movie. And I think I have appreciation for kind of soft jazz and kind of like remixes of like of Elvis tunes is because of this movie. (laughs) Yes, the music is so good. It is so it's funky. It's jazzy. It's very memorable. And a lot of it is just these really cool bass lines that are just super, super melodic and memorable in their own way it's the music in this movie is i was thinking about it this time it's like it's almost as if like hey arnold was a heist movie like that's the vibe i get from the music here that that i totally get the kind of especially there are some of them where i'm like yeah i could see i could see arnold and gerald walking down the street to this yeah and like obviously david holmes did the score for all three movies and just like the like the baseline here for Linus himself, like okay, that's another one that stands out in my mind. But then when everybody goes, oh, it's so Great. it's so good. Like that, um, another one of my favorite pieces of music is in uh, two of them in Ocean's Twelve. One is when Tess realizes, oh, Terry is coming for them, and then she's like, oh, uh, the base is flooded, the pilot light is out. Yeah. Uh, hang up and then like just that 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 piece where danny goes on the run and then finally the piece i love was when when francois tour does his his <laughs> yeah. uh, his dance through the laser grid oh yeah and, and and like that the music in that movie is great in a whole different way it like because that whole entire movie obviously very european sounding and very european influence because of the fact that it takes place entirely in europe this movie, though, it's just like the music is so it's it's very classy and understated, but memorable. And it's not big and bra- brash and loud. And because when I think of Vegas, I think of like, you know, big, you know, trumpets and big, you know, symbols and explosions. And and like this music just kind of lays back and lets all the other really cool stuff 
do the heavy lifting, but it's like the solid backbone of everything, which I think really works. And it's very listenable on its own as well, but it's it's great. Like, I, I couldn't imagine this movie working with any other kind of score to it. No, and one of the biggest tracks to come out of this movie was prior to him being a composer himself that Junkie XL does a remix of Elvis's A Little Less Conversation here. That's Junkie XL? That's Junkie XL. Oh my God, I I never knew that. Mm-hmm. Wow. And this is how you and I were, will be, we're destined to be friends for life is because at one point we're at Suffolk Community College doing TV production. I am being talent for this one project or this one run through. And you're, I think like, I think on a stage manager and Elvis is brought up somewhere in the conversation, just the general before we start rolling. And both of us not even thinking about it, both started singing this iteration of the Elvis <laughs> song. That's funny. Oh, that's funny. And like, I guess for me, that's one of my go-to Elvis things because I'm not like an Elvis listener my only mm-hmm. other connection to elvis is uncle jesse <laughs> from full house <laughs> that's that's as as close to elvis as i i really get but yeah this <laughs> this song every time i watch this movie it'll be stuck in my head for for a good day or so yeah because it's it's, it's a dance track of an elvis version of, of an elvis song so yeah like you can't help but get up and moving for it um and it's the perfect kind of transitional music to vegas like it really is like yeah, we've seen glimpses of Vegas up to this point, but like, no, at this point, every like the crew and the audience are now arriving at Vegas with this song. It's funny when I took a flight out with my family to Vegas for a, a family member's wedding a few years ago. As we were, you know, like we were reaching the destination and we were about to land. I just started thinking of two songs. I started thinking of this song, and I also started thinking of "Born to Be Alive" by Patrick Hernandez, because it's uh, it's, it's when they get to Vegas and Vegas vacation. <laughs> so, and the entire time I was in Vegas, I was just thinking only of Ocean's Eleven and Vegas Vacation, which you know could theoretically be a shared universe. When they're, you know, doing this heist, I could see the Griswold family walking into the <laughs> into the casino. <laughs> Wayne I, Newton's in both of them. Jerry Weintraub's in both of them. <laughs> this is true. I mean, I'm surprised nobody uses the the alias of Papa Giorgio somewhere in this movie. Oh, that would just be perfect. Like that, I could, that could be a Linus. <laughs> yes. A Linus uh, alias. I think uh, the only other thing that, that would like put this movie over the top for me is if the, the, the fight was a Rocky Balboa fight. I think that would just be the ultimate in shared <laughs> shared universe. <laughs> Masturbatory. <laughs> just let's just get this in here. Yeah, let's just we'll crowbar this in. Like there's don't overthink it. Just go with it. Okay. Why not? Like <laughs> uh but everybody shows up at uh Rubens' house and they're like kind of like milling around, don't know if they're gonna uh, if they join this or not. But that's when Danny shows up like, hey, if you're part of this, uh, come on inside. Where Linus is kind of hesitant he's the only one that's hesitant everybody else goes into the house but linus that's when ruben goes up and starts speaking to him like hey like you're 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 bobby caldwell's son like yeah yeah that's okay hey you're from chicago that's true yeah that's nice get in the goddamn house (laughs) just 
just the way he delivers that line. It's like, yeah, we we flew you all the way out here. You're not you are you're not going anywhere. You're in. Get in get inside. <laughs> gotta 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 just push him every step of the way, but eventually he gets there. Yeah. And, and so that's when we it's one of the things that becomes like almost a staple of these movies and just the heist movies in general, the good ones anyway. Um, you lay out the heist, you lay out the plan, what they need to do in order to accomplish that. Because if you, the audience knows what's going to happen, that's when as a screenwriter, you're like, okay, I can throw all these roadblocks to create tension and drama in between when the, the plan goes wrong. And what they figured out is like, okay, there will be around $150 million is going to be in this vault because there's a fight night coming up within two weeks. But they can't get into the vault by faking uh, a voice identification. And they can't get the they'll, they'll only get the codes uh, the day of. And they can't remote uh, start the elevator otherwise because it will be a laser grid and they will lock everything down. So they're trying to figure out how the hell they're going to get in there. But I love how like, Danny lays out all this godly gook of everything that's going to happen here. And that's when Saul pipes up like, and just lays everything down in layman's terms to the audience. Like, if we get through all these things, past the security guards with the guns, the cameras, everything, through the, like, we're supposed to just to walk out of that with $150 million worth of cash without anybody stopping us? Yes. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that's literally just us as the audience, just like, okay, all right, I guess we'll just go along with this too. But this is obviously a big trailer moment here where, like, Linus is like, smash and grab job, huh? <laughs> a little more, more complicated. Com- <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I love on the commentary track, like, Soderbergh says, like, yeah, this is one of like, the tougher scenes to do because like, I have to cover 11 people in this scene here. So I, yeah. it's like, I told people, like, sit, sit or stand wherever you want and I'll figure out where to put the camera. Uh, and they have like a, a 27 millimeter lens. So like, okay, this is like, and funny enough, like Ruben's house is not actually in Vegas. Uh, they shot that in Palm Springs. And so, and since they had to use this wide lens for the scenes here in Ruben's house, they referred to the 27 millimeter lens as the Palm Springs lens. Like, all right, just give me the Palm Springs. We're going to use that for the scene here. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like, how do you feel about the, like the, the laying out of the plan here? I think that this is where, if you're not already hooked by this movie, I think this is the scene where you're hooked by the movie. Because just seeing all of these individual members of the crew come together and seeing how they, first of all, there's their initial interactions with each other. I think it's hilarious when one of the Turk, uh, what, uh, one of the Turk, one of the Malloy brothers. <laughs> one of the Turks. It, it's it's Turk, right? It's, yes, He's just talking to Saul. <laughs> he's, he's just like, oh, I think you do very, very well there in, in Provo. <laughs> you, you get out to Utah very much. Like, it's just like these weird combinations of people who should have nothing to do with each other, but they function and work so well as a unit. But it's just the height of comedy when you just have them just talking about how impenetrable <laughs> this vault is. But you know, with how easy everything comes to all of these characters that yeah, it's no problem. Sure. Yeah, we're not worried about it. We're not very concerned. It, it's it's just hilarious. And then also you have, like, when Yen is just, like, you know, speaking in Chinese and saying, you know, making a motion of going under, 
No, no, no. Tunneling's out. <laughs> they have sensors. <laughs> if a groundhog were to nest within 100 feet, they know about it. It's just like they thought of everything. And it's just so it's just great. It's just at any time you get all of them in one room, I think those are the moments that really make the movie. They really do because everybody shows up to play here. Nobody's like sleepwalking through this movie here. And as an audience member, you can feel that like, oh, they want to have the best time possible by making the best movie possible. And it just, it pays out in dividends for everybody. Cause you're like, oh, it's, it's such a joy to watch here. And they had so much fun. I mean, if you watch the behind the scenes, they had a lot of fun together on set. No one was going back to their trailers in between takes. They're just hanging out and all talking. And I think it comes across pretty well. And for this this group of, of these con artists and, and criminals just thrown together, they have this, uh, this chemistry and they complement each other's skills and abilities very well. And they all have a role, which is, I think, the best part because... If you take one of them away, then the plan is in jeopardy. It's not just 11 guys who could probably accomplish this without, you know, maybe three of them together could accomplish this. No, you need every single member of this team. Right, because it's not just like they have just one job to do. Everybody has multiple jobs to do. Yeah, it's not not like Basher's crew who only had one job to do and didn't do it. (laughs) They couldn't even do that right. Uh, that's why they're a bunch of tossers. Yeah, that's what, that's why he says it'll be nice to work with proper villains again. Like, that, <laughs> that is it. It's like, yeah, the, this is really the Avengers, the Justice League of criminals. <laughs> oh, boy. Like, now I'm really tempted to, like, cut a montage of these three moves together. Just put, like, the Avengers theme underneath it, like, of them coming together. Um, but, yeah. So they were all agreed to do it. So that's when they start putting the plan into motion here, figure out how to shut down the power to the hotel. And that's Bash's job there. Uh, the Malloy brothers are scouting out what the hell they're going to be able to do, like find out the comings and goings of the guards. Um, eventually they have to figure out, okay, this one guard goes to see this one stripper and who swipes his badge off him, allowing Linus to go in and able to, implants uh, a device in there so they can hack into the... Or as how Terry Benedict would say, how they hack into my system! <laughs> you know, the closed caption for that line says, hooked. It says, find out how they hooked into my system, but that is not what he says. Like, is that the it, frenetics of that? Like, maybe? I, like, that's, that's, that's hacked, sir. How they hooked into his system? <laughs> Some of the closed captions, I was, I was watching it this time around for when I was taking notes and everything. I was watching it this time around with the closed captions on just to make sure I got everything. And there were some some interesting choices made by that captioner that I know for a fact are not the actual lines. But yeah, that was one of them. Uh, uh, the Malloy brothers are, are like, they were bickering continues like that they don't have a, uh, that Turk, or, or, I don't know who this, this Virgil or Turk doesn't have the watch that's up to snuff. Uh, who's like, whose watch is slow. Oh, I don't remember. But it, it, but it's like it's just another thing that's going to be building throughout the rest of the movie. Um, Frank and uh, the Malloy brothers have to go get a van mm-hmm. at one point. <laughs> and I think this might be one of your favorite scenes here where Frank can't, like, none of them can't help himself but be criminals and 
Frank cons this man out of this van. Like he gets him to lower the the, the asking price of this van just by sheer brute force of his <laughs> impenetrable grip. I love it. <laughs> this, yes, this is this is my favorite scene of the movie. I think I, when I was younger, I used to just go around just quoting this. I'd like walk into the kitchen and like shake my mom's hand and like recite the thing. <laughs> like it was. It, I love this scene. I love Bernie Mac's performance in this scene. I love the way he just completely social engineers Billy Tim Denim. And it's... uh, Denim like a gene. Oh, yes. Just just like the gene. (laughs) (laughs) It is just a a perfect scene. I could just watch that clip on on youtube it it is one of one of uh the two clips that i will just pull up on youtube if i don't feel like watching the entire movie i'll pull up this clip and i'll pull up the uh fender Rhodes clip from oceans 13 because i think those are just just amazing (laughs) hilarious scenes but yes i i love this i love the way he he gets him down to seven 16 each No, no, you, you do, do that. that for me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, just endlessly quotable, and I quote a lot of these lines just throughout my daily life, and I'm sure no one has a clue what I'm talking about, which is why it's always great when we can get together because finally I am understood. <laughs> and when somebody asks you why you're watching these clips from the ocean movies again on YouTube, you just have to say, "This, this, this, this is a Fender's Road <laughs> moment. I'm a goddamn American hero." <laughs> I make one call. I get Travis Pastrana and his BMX buddies. <laughs> oh God, I love Al Pacino in that movie. <laughs> oh yawn, yawn. I make one phone call, get him here if I want to. <laughs> Screw Sinatra's hand. <laughs> <laughs> Screw Sinatra. <gasps> oh Lordy, Lordy, Lord. Um. Uh, Saul has to impersonate. I like. Do we ever say what he's supposed to be? Other than a shady character, that that the Lyman Zerga, the character he's playing. Well, when Benedict's assistant is telling him about Lyman Zerga, he's saying that he's an arms dealer, and you know one of the biggest, one of the biggest arms dealers, and talking about you know where he operates out of, and it's very vague, and that's what he tells Benedict, very vague, but he's one of the biggest. So yeah, it's it's all very hush hush, but he's he says very vague, but that's why I believe him. So yeah, it, it's. It, I guess he's supposed to be some sort of some sort of arms dealer. But yes, I, I love I love the Lyman Zerg <laughs> persona. I love him workshopping that line <laughs> and just changing the inflection. <laughs> My name is Lyman Zerg. My name is Lyman Zerg. <laughs> like I I almost want to like hear like Robin Williams just do like seventy two different versions of that line reading for oh, some reason. Oh, I'm Lyman Zerg. Oh oh oh, <laughs> Mr. Perry Benedict. Oh oh, I'm not trying to rob you whatsoever. <laughs> okay, here yeah, there's the recast we need. Robin Williams in Ocean's Eleven as everyone. <laughs> Robin Williams playing Popeye as Lyman Zerg. <laughs> <laughs> Beep, 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 beep. My name is Simon Zerga, Mr. Terry Benedict. <laughs> I do a great impression of a hot dog. <laughs> oh, man. Terry Benedict stone faces ass like, do you find yourself, yourself funny? Humorous. <laughs> I used to. <laughs> okay, Mrs. Doubtfire, another one we need to tackle. <laughs> He's already in disguise. Like, nobody would suspect him. <laughs> 
Oh, Mrs. Mi- Delphi as a thief. Oh yeah, we, we need we need a a, a Jethro, a, a Miss Daisy, a Leon Spinks, and the biggest Miss Doubtfire ever. <laughs> um, but even prior to that, when Danny asks uh, Saul if he's ready for this, so and then the incredulous look that Saul gives Danny here is like, if you ever ask me that question again, Daniel, you'll not will not wake up the following morning. <laughs> And Danny just like pivots on his heels. He's like, he's ready. <laughs> <laughs> but Linus gets the, since he's the newest member, he's the youngest member. He uh, gets the shit end of the deal here where he has to shadow Terry Benedict, which is kind of a curious thing. Like even the writers of the commentary track bring up, you're 45 minutes into this movie before you meet the villain of the piece. Yeah. Yeah, I never really thought about that until this time around. I was like, "Oh yeah, wow, we've uh, we're really into this now." Before Benedict makes makes an appearance, but I think he's set up so strong just via Ruben talking about him that I think it almost it it doesn't even matter. I think his his reputation precedes him by the time we actually see Benedict. And like I said, Terry Benedict, played by the great Andy Garcia, who like he's been in so many movies and given so many great performances but push comes to shove when i think of andy garcia i think of terry bendick in this movie in these movies i should say oh yeah by far i also think of those direct tv commercials he did around this time too <laughs> i'm drawing a blank what were those I, it was just like andy garcia with like a blank background and it's just him like reading <laughs> just like reading this thing where he's reading so like a direct tv user's review of direct tv and he's just like my reception is good i love direct tv and i don't know why i just always i was like oh yeah that's terry benedict <laughs> holy shit <laughs> and gets a nasty review like and find out who wrote this nasty review <laughs> And find out why my direct TV is out. Because <laughs> zero to eleven, very fast. <laughs> no, he calls up the person who leaves a nasty review for his his uh, commercials. Like, oh, congratulations, you left your review. You're a dead, <laughs> You're a dead man. man. <laughs> if you happen to be caught in Miami Beach trying to buy a hundred fifty thousand dollars sports car, I'll be severely disappointed. Uh, and then the fact that the dude is a machine, that he's got a very rigorous schedule that he keeps, and that whoever uh, slight, like tries to pull one over on him, he destroys immensely. Like, we hear of a story that, like, yeah, this person tried to rob Benedict, and, like, he not only uh, got his money back, but he took his uh, that person's brother-in-law's, like, uh, dealership and what have you. That Yeah, he just... He destroys your entire life if you go after him. He'll kill you, and then he'll go to work on you, as Ruben says. And that is, that's very effective in setting up this character, because one look at him, it's like, oh, yeah, wow. This guy is a machine. He means business. He's like the Vince McMahon of casinos. He even kind of walks like him, too. So it's like, yeah, this guy means business. Holy shit, I never put that together. He does kind of walk. like When he does like that kind of power walk later, when he's yeah. kind of... Plus, dude, I, I, I see Vince McMahon coming down the ramp now. He's like a like a Cuban Vince McMahon. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he does have an Achilles heel in the his girlfriend, uh, Tess, played by Julia Roberts, who happens to be Danny's ex-wife. Ooh. Messy. And, <laughs> he, he, and this is when Rusty's like, oh, shit. 
So this is what this is all about. It's not about the money whatsoever, isn't it? Yeah, it's, um, I don't know. I guess I never picked up on this early on, but when Danny is waiting for Frank early in the movie, he's reading the newspaper and it has, and Terry Benedict is on, I guess, either in the article he's reading or on the cover or whatever. And I never picked that up until, you know, much, much later. But this always felt a little bit like, oh, okay. That seems a little convenient, but I guess it makes sense. She had to, she had to leave her old life and start anew. But she doesn't seem like the type who would land in Las Vegas. So, I don't know. It it seems a little strange just from a character perspective of of who Tess is. She's she's a a museum curator, and she winds up doing that at a casino in Las Vegas, which seems a bit odd. But then again, we don't really know much about Tess, the character. Outside of her, you know, in relation to Danny and Terry. So, and that's, and that's never really, even in the, in 12, where she gets an expanded role, that's never really explored much either. But overall, I don't have too many thoughts about Tess or this idea that there, it's this whole, um, this whole con, this whole job is just predicated on Danny getting his wife back because to me, it seems very secondary just as a watcher of the movie. It's it's not like something I'm rooting for. I don't know if you feel the same way. It, it's it's like, oh, it's always just like an afterthought for me. Well, like I have a few thoughts. One, I think that Terry and Tessa end up running into each other and he lures her to Vegas by saying, I'll set this art installation up for you within the confines of my casino. And it's why she ends up there. Like, that's just me speculating. And, like, yeah, I mean, obviously the, the thrill of the the movie is the actual heist itself, but I, I like the emotional heart of, like, Danny trying to get um, his ex-wife back, and he wants to make amends. He does it by being a thief again, which, much to her chagrin. But I, I but also enjoying the commentary, like, they, they reshot... Julia Roberts has seen her coming down the staircase because, like, the first like costume she was wearing, it was it wasn't like I think it was like gray. It wasn't it wasn't like the red vibrant one that she was wearing, and the fact that like she wore like really tall heels that it was very precarious of her trying to go down those very like marble staircase, and she's like, I'm trying not to break an ankle. She's coming down here, and it was like, yeah, we're gonna reshoot that. Um, and, but like honestly, like I understand why. That she attracts both uh, Terry Benedict and Danny Ocean because Julie Roberts is just one of the most beautiful women on the planet. Um, but Rusty confronts Danny, wondering, like, hey, is this really about just trying to get Tess back and you're willing to compromise this heist just to get your ex-wife back? But Danny reassures him, no, I have a plan for that and don't worry about it. I, When push comes to shove, I will make the right decision. And he knows exactly what he's doing. He's had plenty of time to think about this in prison so he and and it just gives him more of the motivation that he needs to go through with this job but yeah i I, i've never been particularly invested in the danny and tess relationship so to speak but i mean I'm, i'm fine with tess as a character i i don't like her role in oceans 12 I think that's just a little bit of a jump the shark moment. But in this movie, no, I, I think she uh, 
I, I, I love the, the kick Terry Silver or <laughs> Terry Silver. Terry Silver. <laughs> I like you the, can stand there, get, yeah, get, kick your ass. <laughs> I like the kick Terry Benedict when he's down moment at the end of she's, she, uh, you know, when she's, uh, she's leaving him and she, the elevator opens and Yes. You know, I, I like that aspect of things, but I, I'm, I don't know. I don't, I don't have, I don't have much more to say about the, uh, Danny and Tess and the whole, you're, you're a liar. I only lied about being a thief. That whole, it's just, you know, I don't know. It it was never my favorite part of the movie. <laughs> right. I, I, I like their scene together and it's like, but like, because it's more like that rapid fire dialogue that we brought up so many times, but it's upon this viewing when Terry interrupts Danny and Tess is uh, being reunited there in the uh, um, in the restaurant and the the casino. Just how it's staged, like okay, Terry's on one side of the table and Tess is on the other. Danny's standing closer to Tess, and he's kind of like. He's he's got his body halfway cocked, like as if he's like trying to cut in between Terry and Tess, and Danny's playing with his, his wedding ring the entire time. Hmm. And it's only upon this viewing I realized, like, oh, he's doing that the entire time. He's just like spinning it around his finger, and Terry's not even looking at Danny. He's got his eyes on Tess the entire time. He's not even acknowledging him here, even when he says goodbye. And like Danny's like, good night, Tess. Good night, Terry. And and Terry's just like kind of like dismissively, like, Danny, as he walks away. <laughs> Such a smug bastard. He, like you can't you can't help but be smug. I mean, like because of the fact that like Andy Garcia, like in any other movie, he's the big swinging dick in the movie. But like in this movie, like there's like another dozen people that are just like that. So it's like everybody's battling for dominance the entire movie. Oh yeah, but I mean, he gets his shots in with the. No, the towels you can keep. And lines <laughs> like that delivered so smugly. It's great. He's he's truly a great performance in this movie. Yeah. And, and then, I can't uh, believe I called him Terry Silver, but that's just, uh, I have Karate Kid on the brain at all times. So, but but now I do want to see the version of this movie where Terry Silver is the owner of the Bellagio. <laughs> still wearing the same outfits, not wearing the suits, just still wearing the uh, Cobra Kai uh, uniform. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man! Oh man! It's just like uh, he's got scars in his hands from when he punched in the windows and everything. Anyway, yeah. uh, no, hey, Terry Silver is my favorite movie villain of all time. So, <laughs> um, and so but like during this moment here, that's when Linus uh, goes in to plant a device to so they can hack into the system, but. They need to create a distraction so the Malloy boys, uh, brothers, I should say, create a distraction where Virgil is playing like he's got, <laughs> I can't even say it, is like a, a birthday cowboy trying to deliver balloons to somebody's birthday and bumps into Turk who starts getting into a shoving mess and they start like calling each other names. Like He's a balloon boy. I'm like, I'm just trying to do my job here. I don't have time to work with you circus, circus animals. animals. <laughs> <laughs> they are so loud and so obnoxious and so great. And yeah, it's the perfect distraction for Livingston to just swipe right in there. It's it's great. Oh, man. Where are you going, buddy? I'm not here for a buddy, pal. I'm not your friend, pal. And it's like, not your friend, jackass. <laughs> don't call me a jackass. I did just call you a jackass. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's great. It, although it's like, imagine for those Bellagio employees, just after they leave, just being like, who the hell were those guys? And then they never see them again. <laughs> it's only topped later when they have to sneak Yen into the vault itself. And they create a distraction by saying, oh, you forgot your badge. And they start yelling at each other right there on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, you stupid idiot. You always forget your badge. Like, shut, 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 shut up. Hey, where's this going? Oh, this is, this is Terry Benedict stuff. It's going to his private vault. Okay, I'll put it in the vault. <laughs> j- j- just remember it next time and we can avoid this. <laughs> like, I- I'm sorry. It's my bad. Uh, and... But uh, so like uh, so they got the despite the fact that um, what was it that uh, they got the bug in there and they almost almost get uh, caught with Livingston getting caught by security. Um, and, and I love on the commentary track like during this moment here like real casino employees are not this gullible. They're very smart and they're heavily armed. So this could never happen. Everybody <laughs> we're, we're not endorsing people trying to rob a casino. No. There's like a PSA in the middle of the commentary track. No, it it is like, and this is one of the first real tense moments of the movie. And it's still, even you, when you know what happens, it's still tense watching it back. Because it's it's played so well. Livingston is such a, just a ball of anxiety. But yeah, no, <laughs> it, that employee would be like, that guy was super suspicious. I didn't recognize him. He looks like he has things written on his hands and he has no idea where he's going. I'm definitely going to report this. I'm not just going to let him walk out of here with his view, man. Yeah, and you wonder, like, where did he go? Go talk to who? Go talk to the eye in the sky. Find out what rooms has he gone in, and find out what the hell he was doing. And find but, yeah. out how he hacked into this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're gonna beat that joke into the ground. Oh, <laughs> uh, but uh, we get to see you know. Uh, the demolishment of Ruben's old casino. Uh, so it's a nice, cool, jazzy track again. But Basher was constructing emerald-sized bombs while doing so. But during the destruction of this old hotel, it knocked out the power to his hotel. But that's when they realized, oh, shit. When they did this, this is when they discovered the problems that they were going to exploit. And they're like, oh, what the hell are we going to do now? As they're building a replica of Terry's vault to practice the robbery. Something like that. (laughs) But yeah, it would have been too easy for them had this flaw not been discovered. Because now it gives them an extra, you know, an extra problem on top of all the other problems that they had to deal with the impenetrable vault and the guards and everything. So it's, it's another problem for Basher, but the way he explains things just goes, Oh, all right. you and your eyes start to glaze over. But I love, um, just when he comes out of there and just <laughs> window or aisle boys, we're in deep shit. <laughs> and he throws his sweater down with all the mud and shit. Ugh. <laughs> disgusting and then and then he sits there and explains these very technical things with all this gross stuff all over his face <laughs> Livingston's the only one who could understand him in this gobbledygook <laughs> and he's like if unless we want to do this job in reno we're in barney <laughs> crickets barney rubble trouble <laughs> it's like what 
what does that even mean? <laughs> <laughs> like, you never, like, nobody ever describes Barney Rubble as trouble. Like, you just describe Barney and, like, Fred and Barney and everything, like, but, like... What is it, like, Cockney rhyming slang? Is, like, is that just part of it? Is that part of... Like, he started making up character? his own slang for the movie. Yeah, I, I don't know, but it's... Uh... <laughs> completely falls flat with everyone so they no sell that but <laughs> but that's when like we see obviously prior to this we see Maisie Yen like climb out of the cage cart that they're going to be using and he's going to hide it and then he flips over to one of the shelves and that's how he's able to place the bombs and able to so they can blow their way in but with this flaw now what the hell are we going to do that's when Basher suggests hey we can use a pinch which apparently is a real thing, but it's like the size of a 20 by 20 room, according to the commentary track. It's like it's not something you can just put in a van. And so they, it's dramatic license they have to use to, in order to create a, a low-level EMP to knock out the power of Las Vegas for roughly 30 seconds. And that's the kind of thing where I don't care if it's real or not, you know? To me, it, it's like the clean slate from <laughs> The Dark Knight Rises. Oh, God. Who the hell cares? Like, whatever. <laughs> it's a MacGuffin. Do, just do the thing. Yeah. Um, And so then they have to go get the pinch. And and Soderbergh has said, like, this is like, he does not like this part of the movie. He felt like he could have done this better. He didn't, like, he didn't think he covered it well. And, but he, like, the one choice he thought was the right thing to do was not to show the actual robbery. Show everything from, like, everybody's point of view from outside the building. Yes, the annoying Malloy brothers and their... <laughs> you, you, you touched me. You made me touch you. <laughs> You're and touching they, me. It, and eventually just devolves and them just beating the shit out of each other as they <laughs> sit in the, their seats in the front of the van to the point that Lions can't stand it anymore. And he decides to just break into the place himself because he can't deal with the Malloy uh, sh- uh, chicanery. Oh, yeah, no, I would have killed them. <laughs> I could not suffer the entire ride there and then the ride back <laughs> but when Linus goes in that's when everybody comes out with the pinch load in the van and they get out of there but then Danny's born like wait where's Linus they stop and look at the window and they just see just the like the silhouette of Linus running through the building and the security <laughs> guards chasing him <laughs> yeah and see if it were Mark Wahlberg he would have just beat the shit out of those guards he would have just pulled guns out of nowhere and just gunned everyone down he would have he would have just been in his own movie at that point uh, what i'm not letting stop him i'm going to make a pinch that's what i'm going to do <laughs> all right so hide your mother for me um uh, <laughs> yeah and i uh, just uh, 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 but this is where, when Linus comes back, he gets in the van where he, he tucks and rolls over. He jumps from the second floor of the building, rolls off the hood, and they open the back of the van thinking that's where he's going to roll into. But no, he goes to the front and eventually jumps in the side. However, when they're peeling out of there, Yen tries to close the van doors as they're in motion. But anybody knows van doors like that, they swing pretty easily Ugh, I hate and it. crushes Yen's hand, breaking his fingers. I hate it. <laughs> As someone who just got into a clumsy accident right before this recording, I just, uh, I can sympathize with the end there. Oh, and that's when Danny scolds him like, hey, if you lose, if you lose your attention at any point in this movie, somebody gets hurt. And Lions is like, I got it. I got it. But, um, and it's one thing that you got to think of it like, sure, Matt Damon's done some big movies up to this point here, but like. Jason Bourne, the first Bourne identity, comes out next year. 
and he becomes an action star. He gets a bona fide action star. But in these movies, Matt Damon has no problem playing the Rube in all three movies. And that's what makes his character great, especially in 12 and 13. I think he's one of the best parts of 12 and 13 because he is so willing to go there and look like the not cool guy in the group of cool guys, which is... I admire that because that's there's so much comedy to be had there. Yeah, and uh, but he also insists nose plays. Oh, the nose plays. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do wish that we got a cookie related nickname for him in this movie because he's Snackwell and then Pepperidge in the next, in the next two. So I, I wish he was like uh, Entenmann's or something. Um. <laughs> uh... But when they return to Vegas, Rusty's like, hey, hey, we're having a good trip. And it's just silent in the elevator between Rusty and uh, uh, between uh, Danny and Linus. Like, huh, well, that fun, huh? <laughs> but that's when uh, Livingston informs him, oh, that Danny's been red flagged, meaning whenever they show, whenever Danny shows up, he's immediately going to be stopped by the security, which kind of sucks because he's integral to the degree uh, to, to the, the the plot of the the crime itself but that's when linus says like oh it's because danny's been harassing uh terry bendix's girl and that's when danny comes out says yeah uh yeah uh, my ex-wife is dating terry and i was gonna get her back while doing the crime and saul and ruben are not happy about this <laughs> Test this with Benedict now? She's too tall for him. <laughs> Another line that sticks in my mind every time I think of this movie. <laughs> it's great. Or even before that, before they show up and Rubens is pacing and Saul's just sitting there enjoying his cigar. Like, where the hell are they? <laughs> they, they, they will be here. They will be here. Schmuck. It's great. <laughs> Another like, very quotable line, yes. I just want like a, a few minutes of just them bitching and moaning to, to each other. Oh, yeah, I want the entire time that the guys were off stealing the pinch. I want to see what Saul and <laughs> Ruben were talking about. And Livingston not trying to throw himself out the window with their bitching and moaning. <laughs> he also has a great line in this, in this scene. They'll be watching you like hawks. Hawks with cameras. <laughs> <laughs> he's trying to sound cool there, and he's, like, and he's just owning it. <laughs> but this is when... Rusty suggests that hey Lance, do you think you could do the you could do the part where you have to get the codes off of uh Benedict and yeah, like, Oh well, <laughs> Alright. Well shit, I'm just gonna jump into the deep the deep end here. Yeah, yeah. I mean and it's great because Danny could have just sleepwalked through this. This is just it's muscle memory for him. So seeing how much Linus has to work himself up for this and psych himself up and he gets the advice from Rusty, but then Rusty doesn't finish giving the, the advice. So he's like, <laughs> what should I not do under any circumstance? Like freaking out, but he does well. And and I think that's, that's the best part of it is that we can kind of, you know, he's that aspirational figure of, gee, if I was in this situation, I'd probably th be this freaked out and not know what to do. So it's kind of like that. You can relate to Linus, whereas I could never be as cool as anyone else in this movie. <laughs> yeah, like, it's one of those, you had that, like, sink or swim kind of moments right there. Like, if Danny had not made himself known to Terry, that Danny could have just gone there and just swiped him, no problem. Oh, yeah. Like, it would have been, it just would have been, you know, textbook for him. But mm -hmm. I think it's a better movie for the fact that we have to see Linus rise to the occasion here. Yeah. 
so the fight night arrives. Uh, everybody's getting ready. We see Saul kind of stumble a little bit before he gets up, like to get ready. And you wonder, like, wait, what's going on here? Um, Yen is put into one of the uh, vault carts and he's sent down there with, and Saul arrives with his suitcase full of emeralds that's going to he insists to be put in the vault. Um, much like even though Terry's kind of like, can I just put it in the safe? Like, no, no, these are very important to me. And Terry's like, fine, fine, fine. But on the way to do that and ensure that those emeralds get to the vault itself, Terry spots Danny and tells the security to go pick up Danny. Uh, and Saul's cover is kind of blown here by Bucky Buchanan from Saratoga. <laughs> do the, the the glasses <laughs> taking off motion <laughs> oh what a moment yeah we did that a lot i remember we did that a lot <laughs> in college <laughs> and, and was it i think what was it uh yeah the winter soldier his full name is james buchanan <laughs> barnes and his nickname bucky he's like so it's Bucky Buchanan. <laughs> click, click. Da, 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 da. This is it mows down everybody there at the casino. That is incredible. <laughs> so it's Bucky Buchanan. Da, 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 da. Uh, <laughs> Who the hell is Bucky? Oh, oh lord. And I, I literally had to pause the movie and like, wait, wait. Am I remember that name right? And sure as shit was, but like, yeah, like it, it's. That line, his one line, and we still remember it twenty years later. Oh yes, yes, that is uh <laughs> that's a great bit role there, Bucky Buchanan from Saratoga. Also synonymous with Saratoga for me. Anytime I hear of Saratoga, I just oh well, yep, that's where Bucky Buchanan was. Like, like, like there's a saying like there's no such thing as small parts, only small performances. Mm. <laughs> and this gentleman's like, no, I, I am making my line sing. Oh yes, this man seized every <laughs> every microsecond of that part. <laughs> oh god, it's like I just want to introduce myself. That like, <gasps> Bucky <laughs> Buchanan from Saratoga. Like, oh <laughs> lord. Uh, so Terry's kind of wondering what the hell is going on here, uh, but. She, uh, brings Saul or Mr. Zaraga to the control room to see that make sure that his emeralds are, are in a safe place. Danny says goodbye to Tess, but he slides a cell phone into a pocket unbeknownst to her and runs into a pair of security guards. And I think these gentlemen are independent wrestlers in real life. Are they really? I think so. I think they're from... The tri-state area too. Interesting. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. No. They uh they remind me very specifically of this one Stacker Two commercial that featured Bubba Ray Dudley <laughs> from like 2002 or 2003. Maybe it was them. Who knows? But uh yeah no these guys they're uh they're they're pretty hefty. So I would I would yeah I could totally imagine them being indie wrestlers. Yeah, it, it really is something like because I think. I think a wrestling podcast had mentioned them. Like they were brought up in conversation. Like the host, was like you recognize them from the oceans movies. I'm like, huh? Okay. Um, who bring Danny to a secluded room to be in, 
worked over by a very tall gentleman. <laughs> Ruser. Who's also in on the con itself. Yeah. But, I mean, so technically it's Ocean's 12. Yes. 13 if you want to count Charmaine the stripper. Yes. Who has another great line from this when Brad Pitt was like, sweat gained the badge from her. He's like, uh, thanks for the thanks for this. And say say hi to your mom for me. Like, say hi to yourself. She'll be on in a few minutes. Yeah. And Rusty's face like, huh. Russ with the, the Biff line, but he never expected that. No. <laughs> say hi to your mom for me. But Bruiser cold clocking Danny right there. And Danny's like, Bruiser, not, not until yet. later. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Poor Danny. I forgot. Danny. Bruiser's performance, his his one man fight, and, and all the, the, the foley and and the voice acting that he's doing, the man puts on a great show. I've listened to an audio drama of that of that guy, and I love the fact that the movies like so many people they don't forget about him. They keep coming back, and he shows up in all three movies too. He shows up in all three. Yeah, because he gets Frank out of jail at the end of Ocean's 12. Oh. And in Ocean's 13, he's one of the people they have with the loaded devices to steal money from Willie Banks on right. the night of uh, the opening. Right, yeah. No, I forgot about 12 because it's been like a year or so since I've watched all three of them. So 12's not as fresh for me. But yeah, that's cool. I, I, I love Bruiser. I think he's... Uh, I wish we got a little bit more of him. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but Linus's part is to report that he works for the Nevada Gaming Commission and says, hey, you have a criminal working for you under an assumed name here. And they grab Ramon, uh, uh, a.k.a. Frank, and they bring him to a conference room to confront him. Like, yeah, he's uh, working under an assumed name here. And Bernie Mac just is going after Linus's uh, character here and just is hilarious. It's perfect. It's and just the way that Linus as Sheldon Willis is just completely saying the wrong things and tripping oh all God. over himself and just putting his foot in his mouth. It's great. <laughs> and Bernie Mac, just Frank, the character is a really good actor in this scene. The performance that he puts on for Terry Benedict's benefit. It's great. Better talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, and he, like, he says, like, oh, like, oh, you're targeting me because I'm black. It's like, you can't, like, you can't have a black man, like, deal, and if, you might as well call it white jack. And, like, and, like, you said, like, line, like, Sheldon's, like, just saying, like, the worst things possible right here. Like, he slips out an ethnic slur during this, and Frank goes after him, and that's what that allows Linus to swipe the codes from Terry right there. What did I just say about ethnic slurs? <laughs> Sean Connery. <laughs> A gayish mind trip back. Yuck, 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 yuck. When they were escorting him out, and Frank just goes, Cracker! And like, shows like, oh, good God! <laughs> he cowers in fear behind Terry Benedict. Uh that like Terry's running late and he's like, Oh and but Lion's like, Oh, I think I forgot my beeper. 
another reason how you know it's 2001. Yeah. Uh, the next the next big line, but you know it's 2001. It's coming up in a few minutes. But And Terry's like, you know your way back? Uh, yes, good. And just leaves him. <laughs> just leaves a stranger just moseying around the back end of a casino. Yeah, again, that's another thing where it's like, you just got to suspend your disbelief that he would allow this to happen. But I guess at this point, he he's convinced enough that Sheldon Willis is who he says he is. I mean, either, you know, he either he's a really, really good actor or he's legitimately a buffoon from the end. A very feeble man. Yes. So, uh, no, that's great. But yeah, like you said, there are only a few things in this movie that I feel do make it dated and yeah it's the pager thing and then it's it's the thing coming up but other than that it's like you wouldn't really know because it has such a kind of throwback feel to it and especially with the music and everything it it has a very almost a period feel in a modern setting so it could play anywhere but it is interesting yeah this is still right at the time where pagers were a thing that were you know it was common for people to have a pager and maybe not so much a cell phone so that's one of the few things that I feel that dates this movie. Yeah, like it could only be like dated more if like oh my two way or my phone card. I left my typewriter in there. Can I go? Clack 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 clack. Sing. Uh yeah. And so uh, so Virgil and Turk are able to get Yen to the right people to bring it into the vault. Um. Also, Saul is starting to uh, <laughs> sweat profusely, like he's like he's Livingston I'm in fine. the mod. I'm fine. <laughs> who pretends to have a heart attack at the right moment? That's when Livingston takes over the control of the monitors themselves. They call for a doctor, um, and the doctor who shows up—it's Rusty in disguise. <laughs> and apparently, this wig is an Austin Powers wig. Is it really? Yeah, according to the commentary track, like yeah, like it's like a. I don't know if it's like a working like one, like not like one of the real wigs, but it's like one of the, like the when they do like run throughs like for stand-ins, but like they threw it on Brad Pitt and they put glasses on him, and he's like, all right, let's see if this works. And Brad just walked out to the casino, and nobody recognized him. <laughs> it's such an awful wig, though. If I saw this man walk up to me, I'd be like, okay, you are definitely wearing a disguise. You, <laughs> what is this? I don't know. <laughs> it's just an awful wig, but it plays for comedy. So the wig plays. The wig plays. I, I mean, it's much like when Tom Cruise was preparing for Collateral, and when he plays a hitman, just to blend into the crowd with a nondescript uh, haircut and facial hair. That he got a job for with FedEx for a day and made deliveries, and nobody <laughs> noticed it was Tom Cruise. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess you'd notice when you go into the living room and he's jumping on your couch. And he's like, sign here, please. Will you? And I'm like, oh, oh, okay. Uh, and apparently, uh, despite of the best the best things they could do, they couldn't save uh, Mrs. Erica. We lost. Too late. <laughs> Breathe, damn it. Breathe. <laughs> the melodramatic... Uh, doctor, like as if he's like on General Hospital. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe they should have had Clooney uh, <laughs> play the doctor. They show up like we're. Like, 
This reminded me that line from Basketball where Trey Parker and Matt Stone are trying to save their friend's life in the hospital. Like, we're those pedal things that George Clooney brings people back to life with. <laughs> uh, and so they get Zarga's body out of there. But at the same time, that's when Linus has made his way to the elevator. And he's trying to make his way down there, going to the elevator shaft. Uh, but gets a heart attack because Danny snuck his way into the elevator shaft as if he's John McClane. Yeah. <laughs> Bruce Willis uh, uh, makes an appearance in, in 12, too. So that's uh, there's a tie-in there. There it is. <laughs> uh, and Lions is like, like, what was the whole thing about me do- like me trying to do this? And like Danny just kind of smirks to himself like, oh, come on, man. Why was this kind of like this hazing that he had to maybe go through this right here? I was like, no, oh, you have to learn sometime. Yeah, but it's uh, like, did you did you really think I would sit this one out? It's like, come on, he's 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 got to be, he's got to be at the center of this. Yeah, and you think like, it's not like I didn't trust him or anything like that. It's like, no, I just this is what I have to do as well. But so the fight night is about to begin, and like you said before, we have Vegas regulars there in the audience, including uh, Jerry Weintraub. You have Wayne Newton. Say cheese. <laughs> I'm gonna make pasta. <laughs> <laughs> the left is Stardust. Uh, the right is Bellagio. And up on the left is uh, Wayne News House. Ooh. <laughs> it's a lock of my hair. Oh, God. Oh, man. Um, and so that's when everybody gets in the position. The fight is about to begin. Everybody's in position, but now everybody's waiting on Basher. Basher has to trigger the pinch. Who's taking a sweet test time to do this? <laughs> well, then you, be- you better leave out bothering me then, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Who luck puts the pinch in the van, the one that uh, Frank is able to get for a cheaper price. And he's about to trigger it. But Badge is even concerned, like, all right, what can this actually do to the physical <laughs> surroundings around me? He covers his, his privates just to make sure he doesn't lose those in this explosion. <laughs> Triggers the bomb. Which destroys the van and sets the entire city into darkness. Now, what do they do with that van? I wonder. <laughs> like, how do you, how do you get that out of there? <laughs> Doesn't that yeah, just look suspicious? Just sitting I'm there. I'm sure they did the same thing like they do with the other van. They had to blow it up. Yeah, it's like it's already half destroyed. It's got this big pinch in it. It just looks <laughs> really suspicious. And do they even have time to address the van? I want to know what happens. I see these these are the loose ends that you you start really thinking about it, and and this is where you have someone uh, someone like Cinema Sins or something like that pointing out that oh yeah they they didn't they wouldn't have time to get rid of this van. Yeah, the Cinema Sins, the Killers of Joy, along with uh, MythBusters. Um, so. Linus and Danny sl- uh, zip line down the way the uh, the elevator shaft, but get caught. But they cut their way loose. The sound design um, there, when those those things that they're repelling on reach reach the end, that just sounds painful. That's just... <laughs> the, the, the yeah. larching to the sudden stop. Great sound like, design. Oof. Great sound design on the glow sticks fa- falling <laughs> to the bottom. It's a. It's a <laughs> <sighs> um, so they were able to get down there without setting off the alarms but that's when the power comes back on the city and the city's in pandemonium Rubens oh, oh this is crazy oh <laughs> the fighters want to continue the fight like the bell rang before the lights went out so they're like oh the, the, the match is still on 
But this is another one of the stunts where I, I, I always go oof whenever I see it. Because when he cuts to the inside of casinos, everybody it's a free-for-all. Everybody's trying to rob everybody else. <laughs> and there's one cocktail waitress who's trying to make her way across the casino and gets clotheslined <laughs> by a customer. Like, feet in the air. Yeah. Like, and you hear like a like oof. Like flamingo. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I always like, oh my god, that must have like, I hope. I hope that was no injury was involved there because that looked like it hurt. Yeah, it's like the lights go off for for thirty seconds and suddenly everyone loses their minds. <laughs> uh, and like that's when like Terry just like tells like Tesla, grab your coat. We're getting the hell out of here before like a riot breaks out here. You know what? <laughs> you know what would have been great? Lights go off. All of a sudden they come back on. The Undertaker's in the ring. <gasps> oh my god! <laughs> the theme hits and there's like oh my god and like. It's lightning, the whole shebang. <laughs> if only. Uh, if only. Um, these cuts of Randy or- Orton's face, I can't believe it. Like, oh my god, <laughs> he found me. I don't know how, but he found me. <laughs> um, so Danny and Linus, like, throw their gas grenades or whatever to knock out the guards. But when Yen was in the vault... They put the guards accidentally put Zerga's uh, briefcase on top of the cart that Yen is in. And it's such a small thing, but it creates one of the most tense moments of the movie. Because you like, it's like, even like, because like Livingston says the best, like, oh shit. <laughs> and Yen opens the lid slowly, slowly, and like the briefcase is sliding, sliding. Oh god, no, no, no. And Yen grabs it the last moment before it slides down and he's able to get himself out of there. Luckily, he's able to flip off the carts. Almost falls off the shelves themselves. But luckily, he's able to place the bombs and everybody's in, everything's in, in place here. But the bandages around Yen's hand gets caught in the vent by the vault door. Yeah, they so many nail-biting moments in this one scene just with Yen. And as many times as I've seen this movie, it's still, I'm just stressed out watching all of this unfold. And I know he makes it, and I know it's fine, but it's still, it's it's, it's very good drama. And it's su- it's such small things when all things considered, all the moving parts in this movie, and some of the highest <laughs> points of drama are a briefcase being put on top of a, a cart. You know, a, a man almost falling off of, well, he does a backflip onto a shelf. That's pretty, that's pretty extraordinary. But then getting, just getting that, the his hand wrap caught. It's just like such a simple thing, but it creates so much drama. Yeah, but like, he is saved by the plot here that they conveniently forgot to put batteries in the detonator. <laughs> yeah, just like the Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> uh, but I, I forgive it because they're like, Linus Colt brings back the line, like, if you lo- if you stop paying attention for a moment, and, like, Danny's like, yeah, 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 you don't hear Yen complaining. He puts in the batteries, and he accidentally triggers it and blows up it on, on accident. Not sure if Yen got himself cleared or not. Oh, yeah, well, he was, wherever he was, he was thrown clear. <laughs> so they open the vault door, and they ask, like, this, Yen, are you okay? Yen digs himself out from underneath the rubble and just, just asks them the most important question in the entire movie. Where the fuck have you been? <laughs> and they're like, uh, I- I'm sorry. 
But this is when Rusty calls the cell phone that was put into Tessa's uh, jacket. And Terry asks, as they're leaving the the arena, the boxing arena, are you going to answer that? And the most 2001 line of all time, I don't own a cell phone. Yeah, and it wouldn't be too long before that line became just horribly dated. And everyone watching the movie just looks at the person next to him. She doesn't have a cell phone? Yeah. And just like, because seven-year-olds have cell phones now so watching that it's always just kind of quaint and funny that she doesn't have a cell phone and the cell phones themselves just seeing those old flip phones with the antennas that come out it's just like oh yeah i feel ancient right now (laughs) i could watch this movie on my current phone and those phones you could barely even play snake I mean, I, I imagine the people who had like the 80 blo- 80s block phones looking at that. It's kind of like, like, oh my god, like, ha- like how, like how, how is this even possible? But um, that's when Rusty tells him, like, uh, Terry, you're being robbed right now by me and my friends. Uh, so Terry goes to the control center to find out what's going on, where Rusty gives them an, an ultimatum, like, we're only packing up half of the money. So if you allow us to take half your money and let us leave, that's it. That's all you'll lose is half it. But if you stop us anyway, we've rigged all the money with explosive. So either you can lose $80 million privately or $160 million publicly if you try and stop us. I love this scene here because this is where the calm and collected terry benedict i had to stop myself from saying terry silver i'm glad you did that he's he's so comic collected throughout the movie he's a machine he's a well-oiled machine he runs like clockwork this is where everything just starts to unravel for him and he has that outburst as that we've been quoting the entire episode i just love it because now the tables are turned and Russ is the one who's he's cool. He's calm. He's collected. Everything's going according to plan for him. You know, of course I'm staying in your hotel. You know, I have two words for you. Mini bar. It's like the tables are turned and it's just so sweet to watch Terry. Ter- I, again, I was going to say Terry Silver to watch Terry Benedict get his. Whereas he's been the one who operates like this the entire movie. And now he's he, like he's on the receiving end of it. It is just so satisfying to watch. It really is. And because it's like his umpire slowly slipping through his fingers right here. Um, but Terry tells his right-hand man to his, like, uh, to make the call, and they call SWAT, who comes in to stop them. Um, we hear the SWAT go in. We hear some kind of altercation happen. An explosion happens. And that's when they ask for the lights to be brought back up after they plunge into darkness temporarily. The money seems to be destroyed, and nobody's there. Everybody's gone. It, it's uh, It's unexplainable right there. But, um, and this like, even on the commentary track, the writers copped this. They're saying, like, wait, how did Yen, Danny, and Linus get down there with bags? Yeah, that's true. The bags are one of the things where it's like, yeah, no, when you think about it, that doesn't make sense. Where do these bags come from? And even Soderbergh cops it like, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. And they immediately move on. They don't like they don't even bother explaining it. <laughs> oh, well. like, yeah, they say fuck it, let's keep going. But that's just how great this movie is, that it doesn't even matter in the grand scheme of things. 
Right. Like, like you can draw drive trucks through the plot holes of the Dark Knight if you really want to, of like of Joker's plan and everything. But like, it doesn't matter because when you're in the middle of it, you do not care. Yeah. No. This is this is just this is just the fun of the movie. It is not something where you have to sit here and just plot everything out and this needs this makes everything needs to make logical sense and if it doesn't make logical sense then we have to go online and complain about it this is not a movie where i feel any need to go online or and complain about anything or even sit there and and turn to my wife and say you know i never thought that doesn't make sense i don't even care it's like whatever you know like these these men are as far as i'm concerned they're magicians the way they're able to just social engineer these situations to happen the way that they do so it, it's it's really it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things but it is it is funny that even during the commentary they just be like yeah oh well <laughs> <laughs> moving on yeah like they just like it's not like it's not a movie to be taken seriously it's, it's a, like it's a light romp if you want to everything like that it's a friday night popcorn film um but like the six bags of the half money that they agreed to bring outside and bring into a van, they follow that van to the airport. Uh, but they find the van is being driven by remotes, um, and the, the bags are not even filled with money. They're filled with uh, flyers for hookers. <laughs> I, just, I just love that line delivery. Like the walking target. It's a fill with flyers for hookers. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's an ellipsis. It's a dot 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 before he he blurts out hookers. <laughs> Yeah, and Terry's just like just standing in his vault, like just shaking his hand. And the SWAT team member is like, "Ah, we're gonna look around the area." He's like, "Just get out of here, man!" Like, blue team, move out. Moving out. <laughs> <laughs> but that's when Terry says, "Like, well, I'll sh- cue up the the footage of the robbery." Does it say Bellagio on the vault floor? No, it doesn't. These were put in on Tuesday. It was staged. Somebody made a duplicate of my vault. Then what happened to all the money? And then we cut to the SWAT team. It's everybody. We see flashbacks of everybody in disguise who were not part in the vault to begin with. As SWAT members going down and getting Danny, Linus, and Yen and getting them the hell out of there. Walsh is... Walsh here is my wife watching any movie. I don't understand. What happened to all that money? (laughs) (laughs) But what I want to know here, and this is a stupid thing, but it's like, why does Terry Benedict need the Bellagio name to be installed into the floor of the vault that only the people watching the security cameras will see? Does he is is it a precautionary measure in case anyone tries to make a duplicate of his vault? Did did he did he prepare just for this exact scenario un, unknowingly? Or is is that just the kind of fuck you money that this guy has that he can just oh yeah I want I wanted to say Bellagio no one ever sees this but yeah sure get it installed do it on Tuesday like I never understood why but I guess that is it's kind of key because there has to be something different about it for him to realize that oh yeah that's not my vault but he puts that together very quickly yeah I I think it's He's very vain, and like you said, he has fuck you money, so that's why he does it. And now that I think about it, it's something Terry Silver would do as well, so it tracks. Yes. (laughs) 
Uh, and then Terry leaves with his his Vince McMahon walk. <laughs> and says the, the best line of the movie. <laughs> yeah, I'll find out what's going on. And find out who, how they're hacked into my system. <laughs> I apologize to the listeners at home. The entire time I was watching uh, Mr. Robot throughout all four seasons, I was just waiting for someone to say that line. <laughs> oh, Lordy, Lordy, Lord. And that's when... Terry goes to see Danny, see if he's still there, and he is. He's being beaten up by Bruiser. Danny's returned to the room, but he's in far too good a shape if he had been beaten up for the past like half an hour. Oh yeah, this guy doesn't sell anything. No, <laughs> he's just he's immediately Benedict walks in and he's cracking wise. <laughs> um, and he asks Benedict asks Danny like, "Did you have any hand in this?" And Danny's like, "Have in hand in what?" But that's when it's like Terry's like, all right, well, fine, let's get the hell out of here. And Danny makes a uh, is making a crack uh, as they're leaving. But that's when Livingston calls Tess and tells her to turn on the TV and goes to this certain channel, which is a feed of one of the security cameras in the the bowels of the casino, where she spies in the conversation between Terry and Danny. And Danny says like, hey, what happened, Terry? Did you get robbed or something? Terry asks like, hey, did you know who did this? What if I told you I can I can find out who did this for you, get your money back, but you must give up Tess. Would you do that? After a moment, Terry says, yeah, I give up Tess for the money. Breaking Tess's heart right there. Yeah, well, we know where his priorities lie. And if she thought that he was going to choose her over his his money, his casino, then she's got another thing coming. She 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 had to know what she's getting into with a guy like this, with a guy like Terry Benedict. Come on, like, really? <laughs> yeah, and that's when Danny says he agrees to help him out and find out who's responsible for the crimes. Uh, but he informs him, like, oh, you're escorting Mr. Ocean off the premises. I'm sure he's probably in violation of his probation right now. Tess goes down to see, like, Goes down the elevator and comes across Terry, and I love this. This is the just the the look that Tess gives Terry here, and Terry's like Tess, Tess. You of all people should know Terry. In your hotel, there's always someone watching. And then she slaps him twice out of guilt. It's weird. <laughs> the guilt slap the second slap plays (laughs) (laughs) I'll never be able to watch that scene the same way yes now I just want an Andy Garcia Bruce Wayne do you know what younger Andy Garcia he could have have been a good Bruce Wayne (laughs) uh and so uh, Tess goes to run out and sees Danny being escorted by Vegas police. Uh, and she's like, hey, I'm sorry about everything. And, ter- and Danny's like, it's, o- it's okay. When will you be out? Uh, about three to six months, depending on the uh, parole board. And and we get to one of the loveliest moments in the entire movie. It's the entire crew. They've already they dropped off the money. And they go stand out outside. I forget the name of the hotel where it has the giant fountain. Um, is that the is it the Mirage? Is it the Mirage? It might be the Mirage. 
I'm going to do it. I'm what? not sure. I don't know anything about Vegas. My my only reference point for Las Vegas is this movie. So like even when I was in Las Vegas, I'm just like this looks like Ocean's 11. Everything is Ocean's 11. So it actually is Bellagio. It's the Bellagio. Okay, yeah. yeah. Well, that makes sense. That's that is the one that they robbed. But yeah, no, it's it's a beautiful moment. It's it's a moment where it's like you find yourself just like, why am I crying at the end of Ocean's Eleven? <laughs> but it, I guess, I guess it has something to a little something to do with the music, the music selection. Oh, it's perfect. And Soderbergh said to have them like, stay where you want, and you guys can leave whenever you feel ready. Just this good go in a feeling right there, and so like everybody just like the slow one by one, and I think it's perfect that Carl Reiner is the last one to leave. Oh yeah, it's it's that it's just the look he gives. You, there's so much he, that he says on his face. This is an adventure he never thought he would go on. He thought that these days were over for him. He thinks at that point that this is probably his last job, and you know everything that he had to go through with these guys. It, it's probably you know probably brings up a lot of great memories of robbing <laughs> for him. So he, uh, yeah, he, he gets that moment. He gets that kind of legend send off there, but not really. Cause I mean, we know he comes back, but for this movie self-contained, it's a great moment and I love it. And if it, if there was never another movie made and it stops right there, I love the way it all ended. Yeah. It, it really is something wonderful. And the filmmakers on the commentary track, um, they said like the movie could have ended there, like, like even people said like you you should end the movie there, like it's the perfect send out, it's the perfect note to go out on. But like Soderbergh says like no, we want to see that Danny A gets out and B that is not without consequences, that they're being like so because Danny gets out of prison three to six months later. Picked up by Rusty wearing Ted Nugent's shirt um, and goes into like a a jalopy of a car that, that Rusty is driving. And then with, it fl- it flies into the screen and, and credits. <laughs> yeah, it pulls, turns into grease. It's real weird. It's real surreal at the end right there. Oh, I was going uh, for Back to the Future. But <laughs> oh, God damn, you're right. Even, even more so. They never should have put the girl in the car. Nope, 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 not at all. Uh, but Danny is reunited with Tess and like Tess is like, we got to get a, we got to get Rusty a girl. <laughs> Rusty's like, there's a woman's prison down the road. <laughs> no, we, uh, we, we, he has Catherine Zeta Jones. We don't, uh, <laughs> we don't need to go that route. Yeah. But that's when they're being followed by Bendix Thugs and the movie ends there. And it, it, it's just, it's a satisfying movie. It is like highs and lows, lots of laughs and everything, but, uh, Good times, great legs. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, on the cover of the DVD. <laughs> in giant bold letters that take up part of the like, you can't even see the actress names. Like it's like the reviews are so massive it takes <laughs> it takes over the this the packaging itself. <laughs> but uh, your final thoughts on Ocean's Eleven? I love this movie. I I love this movie so much. I have many great memories of watching this movie, of quoting this movie with friends, and I just I can watch this movie all the time. This is in my yearly rotation. I I own I own a handful of movies digitally that are the movies that I go back to 
every year, every so often. And uh, this is these movies, Oceans 11, 12, and 13, these are movies that I can go back to. 11 more so because I can just watch it and not feel that I need to watch the other two. Whereas with something like Back to the Future or The Karate Kid, I, I want to watch. I want to delve into that world. But with Ocean's Eleven, I could even just watch this and be satisfied and, you know, get my fill of, of what I need. But it, it is nice to know that, well, if you like this, you can see these really funny and talented people hang out again two more times. <laughs> so that's always it's always nice to know that, oh, yeah, I could pop in, you know, 12 or I could pop on 13. And it, it's not exactly the same i don't love them quite as much but there is there's a lot to love with all of these movies and i have a a lot of great memories of them and i just think it's a perfect example of why i enjoy movies these movies right here so i didn't get to see this one in theaters but i made sure that when 12 and 13 came out that i went to see them in theaters because uh and it, and that was that was really fun as well. That that elevated those movies, those viewings for me. So, I just this trilogy as a whole, I I really do have a lot of fondness for it. They are you know not the greatest movies ever made from a, a you know a a storytelling standpoint, from a, a plot standpoint. They're not these treasured you know, timeless films, but in, in their own way, I do think they're timeless. And I think that people will go back to this one way more than the original Ocean's Eleven. Yeah. I think it's one of the rare occasions where the remake surpasses the original. And I think that's brought up enough. I think because everybody just assumes these movies being their own entity. They did. They rarely recognize the fact like, Oh, the first one's a remake. And yeah, it's, one of the early examples of me discovering Steven Soderbergh as a filmmaker as, and somebody that I followed ever since. And I'm just fascinated by his career because he's always willing to make daring choices. Um, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't, but that's the point of risks. And the fact that he, he's his own camera rapper, he's his own director of photography and he edits a lot of his own movies too. It's just, it's something I, I aspire to be, something to be that hands-on, that technical, and that proficient and, and still make very entertaining movies. It's something to aspire to be. Um, and it's just so funny. Like He made one of the most prescient movies a few years later with Contagion. It's very curious like that. Um, and like, with these movies, like yeah, it's like... How would I describe it? It's... <laughs> I don't want to say I don't want to say junk food because I think that's negative connotations. Like no, it's like yeah, they're popcorn movies. They, they really are. Like they're not heavy subject matter. Like they're movies that you can put on at any time. Much like our beloved Back to the Future trilogy. Like you can just put those on at any time and no problem. Like you catch them on TV, you're sitting down and watching it from wherever they come up on. Yeah, and especially this movie here, just like the camaraderie about this. And speaking of that, we have. 13 major players in this movie and each one has a distinctive personality and it's all done in under two hours. And I realized this cause I, I messaged my friend, Michael Balaf, a filmmaker who I've had on the show a few times. Uh, cause we're huge fans of the Lord of the Rings movies and the Hobbit movies. And I said to him like, do you know what this movie did better than the Hobbit trilogy? And he says, what that the oceans movie is able to set up, set up 13 characters in under two hours, better than a trilogy of movies with the Hobbit movies. With the, <laughs> the and, and he's like, 
I can't argue with you there. Like I like, he's like, I like the special features of the Hobbit movies, but like the Hobbit movies are a shadow of its former self when it comes to Lord of the Rings movies. And I'm like, yeah, it's unfortunate like that. I still watch them, but it's really, really astounding that they were able to sell up. It's a dynamite script. And I think all screenwriters and all filmmakers should read it. I'm going to try and track it down to, and to read it. And yeah, and it just as an entertaining movie, because this is what it all boils down to with technical things aside, as long as the movie's entertaining and it makes you have a, you have a good time with it, that's the most important thing. And the fact that 20 years later that we're still able to do that, it's still quoted verbatim, speaks to the impact of this movie here. And I don't see that, that changing anytime soon. Yeah, it's a great ensemble cast, very well, a very well cast movie. These roles are, are are just filled perfectly. They're all so memorable. You know, they each have their moment to shine. They maybe don't get the type of character depth that you could have if it were a three hour slog, but it doesn't need to be that. This movie moves. It's very fast. It feels like, oh, we're already here at the night of the fight, the night of the robbery. Like we're already, it, like it feels like whenever you watch back to the future and you're like, Holy shit, we're already at the dance scene. Like we're already doing this. This movie just flies by and it is a very lean script. It, it, it like, it just flies by every word of dialogue serves a purpose. It advances either character or story and it sets the tone so well early on that like, this movie is just a breeze to watch and a true delight. And I think, yeah, that's the main thing. It's, it's fun and you will watch this movie and you will have a great time. And then if you want some more, you got two more to watch. And then you have another movie that maybe not so much, but yeah, no oceans 11. I, I, if, if anyone at this point hasn't seen oceans 11, like I would just implore them to get on it because it is, if, especially if you like, Marvel movies, if you like Avengers style team ups and things that things like that that are very en vogue right now, very popular. This is really one of the original big budget Hollywood team ups, especially of this era. So, yeah, I think that this movie continues to be relevant and continues to be massively entertaining. I wholeheartedly agree. Um, now, Chris, if you want to follow you in your musics on your podcast and your work elsewhere on the interwebs, where can people find you? That's a good question. Uh, I don't, yeah. <laughs> I don't have any personal social media, but I do a podcast called pro wrestling repackaged. It is about wrestling related TV shows. We are just wrapping up our first season covering young rock, which just got renewed for a second season. So we will be revisiting it in the future, but our next show that we will be, covering is Stephen Amell's upcoming wrestling drama Heels, which will be on Stars. So if you want to check that out, we're at PW Repackaged on Twitter, Instagram, and you can find us on all the podcast outlets. And if you want to check out any of my music, I do some original stuff. I do some stuff for Tim short films, which is always fun. And I also do covers of wrestling themes. That's all at multitrackminds.com. You can find everything I have ever done that is worth sharing on the internet, multitrackminds.com. Yes, and I'm always very thankful whenever you provide music to the work that I do. Uh, it really means a lot. And yeah, check out uh, all of his work. Um, it's a lot of fun. And I love when couples podcast together because there's a certain energy that <laughs> that that you can't like. Friends is one thing, but like couples is a totally different thing. And it's, it's very hard to replicate. And that's why I, I really admire when couples do podcast together. 
it's a lot of fun too. It's a great bonding activity. <laughs> yeah, because you're like you're forced to have a conversation with that person, and you're just like, okay, you learn more about the person in the in the process of doing that. It's fun, you know. It's fun when you have a shared interest, and you're like, well, we would talk about this anyway. We would watch this thing anyway. Let's record it. Why not? So yeah, it's 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 been fun to do. So uh, yeah, no. If anyone if anyone checks it out. I would really appreciate it. Very nice. Now, if people want to follow me on social media, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at this is Tim Rooney. Rooney as an R-O-O-N-E-Y. That's where I post a lot of my, my ongoings and whatever I'm working on. Uh, my other podcast, Please Rewind, the RF4RM Retro Show. Uh, that's where I talk about movies like this when it comes to anniversaries. And my YouTube channel, uh, YouTube channel, excuse me, youtube.com slash through the lens productions through as if you're going through a door or a window uh, my latest video is actually uh test footage i just had with my dji uh, uh, uh phantom 3 drone it's just me testing it out and seeing what i can do with that and how i'm going to add production value to my projects going forward and it looks fucking awesome thank you you're very kind and it was just it's nerve-wracking flying that thing the entire time because it's just <laughs> like I'm like like Please signal like like it's like rated so like it, like unobstructed no magnetic interference like it can go for like two miles like that's how far you can go with it but I'm like I, I'm not going far out of my eyesight that's as far you're going right now sir yeah I see you like like Livingston on the shore just like <laughs> sweating and praying that your drone does not go down in the middle of the water <laughs> oh god like I'm just like uh, you're not far off that's exactly how I felt. <laughs> It, it, do, those were great shots though so i can't wait to see what you do with with this new toy what where does he get these wonderful toys oh <laughs> uh, thank you i, I i'm really looking forward to using that on a very upcoming up, up project that i have in the works right now but uh subscribe to the show so you never miss this episode uh i so i would say chris thank you for taking time every night to talk oceans 11 with me thank you for having me i love anytime i get to come on here and talk about the things that we always just talk about anyway whenever we hang out so it's always a blast i love coming on this show of course of course i appreciate that come back next time everybody when we continue to talk about geek and pop culture and we'll be speaking to you soon anything went <laughs>